Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Mao Zedong, a man whose name is synonymous to many with one of the most heinous regimes of the 20th century, if not one of the most heinous regimes in world history. Communist China. Life under Mao, not the best. If you valued free speech, freedom of expression, hearing multiple opinions, owning your own land, not starving, not being beaten, not being sent to a labor camp to be re-educated for having an opinion that differed from Mao's. The Chinese Communist Party headed by Chairman Mao, they thought they knew how to make a better world for China, and they were willing to purge anyone who thought differently. They ended up making life a living hell for tens of millions of Chinese people for decades. Mao's two major hallmark initiatives, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, did arguably way, way more damage than they ever did good. The Great Leap Forward was designed to turn China into an industrial powerhouse by setting very ambitious goals for production, goals that people literally could not meet. While trying to please Mao, they lived on communes where their food was strictly rationed, rationed sometimes not enough to live on. They would work sometimes for several days in a row without giving any time for sleep. And if they complained or quit, they were beaten or killed. And you thought your boss was a dick. When the Great Leap Forward failed, Mao instigated the Cultural Revolution to paralyze his political opponents and throw the country into further chaos. He mobilized thousands of students to fight against the, quote, old ways, which included violently destroying temples, beating teachers, brutalizing anyone, anything not deemed revolutionary enough to his irrational liking. Teachers, elders, grandparents, all brutalized in the name of Mao's revolution. Many, many people died as the result of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. The most agreed upon number seems to be around 45 million. 45 million people died under one man's rule, and not through war, through tyranny and ineptitude. And the Communist Party of China would take no responsibility for any of this. Nothing was Mao's fault. Not even millions of people starving because he commanded his citizen to kill citizens, excuse me, to kill all of China's sparrows, not realizing these birds ate locusts. And without them, those locusts went buck wild on China's crops, causing a massive famine. Instead of taking responsibility for causing the famine, Mao punished the farmers further, imposing even more insane expectations on them for crop production to make up for the crop losses he caused. 
which led to further tyranny and starvation. Mao was the Communist Party, and the Communist Party ruled China with an iron fist. They still rule China. Mao was lauded as an icon. And his quotations were printed in books that were distributed by the hundreds of millions to Chinese citizens for mandatory reading. Cult, cult, cult. Mao was a master brainwasher, trained in propaganda, who is still thought of today by many as a patriot. Lots to suck today. In a red as fuck, purge your enemies. True communism just doesn't seem to ever work in the real world edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, meat sacks. Get in here. Put on your robe. Enter the compound. Welcome to the cult of the curious. Get ready for the incantations. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, suck master, regular bather. Dude not covered in pig shit and pig blood. Those last couple references only make sense if you heard last week's episode. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Lucifina, glory be to Triple M, and Bo Jangles. Oh, his hackles are raised. He's uneasy about today's topic. Uh, recording again in the Suck Dungeon, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Winter has returned, but spring, it's almost here. I, I can feel it. I can feel sunny days coming back again. Uh, Ed Gein's Playhouse in the store, a t-shirt <laughs> called Ed Gein's Playhouse in the store this week at badmagicmerch.com. It's insane. Uh, Pee Wee Herman parody with former Suck subject Ed Gein, the butcher of Plainfield, a dude who danced in the moonlight wearing a suit made out of other people's skin. And now, you know, we have a funny t-shirt about that. It's absurd and wonderful. Hopefully like this show. Uh, don't know how much we're giving this month yet to our uh, Bad Magic Productions Charity of the Month. Recorded this in advance, but we do know what charity we're giving to. This month, we're donating to a nonprofit we've donated to before, the St. Bernard Project, a.k.a. the SBP. Thanks to your support, we'll be donating over $12,500 to help those in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana as they continue to work on their recovery from the winter storm, Yuri. SBP, the most fun, uh, the more funds they receive, the more they'll be able to assist in helping low-income homeowners who generally have the least amount of access to resources. SBP volunteers are on the ground right now in Houston, Southwest Louisiana, repairing damage caused by so many burst pipes for, uh, for those impacted by the storm, providing mucking, gutting, uh, mold re remediation services, replacing drywall, repairing damaged pipes, so much more. Thank you to our uh, Patreon space lizards for letting us give more and more every month to great causes. Uh, now let's get into communist China, officially called the People's Republic of China and suck Mao Zedong and his tragic cultural revolution and the Great Leap Forward. Let's talk the life of a man some still worship, uh, almost like God is the father of modern China and China's greatest leader ever. A man uh, many others think uh, was worse overall when it comes to the totality of human death and suffering he directly caused than Hitler and Stalin combined. Today's episode is a tricky one. It's got me stressed out a little bit. Such a massive topic. Uh, hard to choose what information to focus on for a couple hours. Uh, I'm going to lay down some Chinese history first, lay out the basics of Chinese culture to set the stage for a timeline of Mao's life and rule. So we will start with a little bit of that today. Also need to go over the basics of communism as well to understand what kind of changes Mao was making in China, what he was trying to do. How did Mao interpret the ideas of Marxism? How did he implement those ideas to create communist China? Then we'll walk through a timeline of Mao's life, covering most of the key moments along the way. I'll be uh, definitely judging the hell out of his choices as we as I lay them out. I'll do my best to judge them fairly within their historical context. 
Some of them, objectively pretty terrible. Uh, So much to look into today. Why did China become a communist nation in the mid-20th century? How did Mao rise to power? Then once in power, why would the Communist Party of China subject its own people to such brutality and oppression? Uh, Why didn't he brush his teeth? Why didn't he take baths? Why did he have his wife help him poop? How did we end up covering another dude who was so dirty, uh, literally dirty, after last week's pig farmer killer suck? Mao truly was filthy. That wasn't just nonsense I was saying. We'll get into that. Mao's reign led to a lot of misery and death. Is that what he set out to do? It doesn't seem to have been. Too often with revolutions, like with the Bolsheviks in Russia, like Pol Pot in Cambodia, the oppressed who rise up and overthrow their masters end up becoming more oppressive and more ruthless than the previous masters. Right? The grass sure as shit isn't always greener on the other side of a revolution. You can get to the other side of the revolution, you can win, quote unquote, and then things can be much worse. They can go from bad to worse. Imagine that. And imagine you're fed up with how shitty your life is. You join a revolution. You risk your life to overthrow the existing government. You watch many of your, you know, uh, co-revolutionaries, friends and family die in the fighting. Then you win. You're like, fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Right? You're celebrating. And then the government you help put in power, even shittier than the government you help destroy. Like, God, God, goddamn, whoops. Too late to say JK? Too late to go back to the, the way things were before? How depressing would that be? That certainly happened in China for many. Early on, Mao and his cohorts truly believed they would raise many of China's people out of poverty, eliminate class struggle. They had a lot of fans. Uh, early on, they, you know, they actually did make life better for a lot of people, and then, then they didn't. Then they made things so much worse. As Mao rose to power, as a true cult of personality developed around him, and the uh, nearly absolute power he wielded seemed to corrupt him, uh, he became corrupted almost absolutely. Right? Isn't that the, what's the saying? Absolute Uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. He became paranoid, like so many tyrannical, ruthless rulers do. So afraid that someone would try and take his precious throne from him. Uh, He was was no longer a man of the people. He was a man above the people who uh, lashed out, purged people. He felt were potential threats. Uh, Purged them ruthlessly. Mao would enact many brutal measures to make sure he retained his precious power. Almost all of them based in some interpretation of communist ideals. Mao was a big fan of Karl Marx and his infamous political and philosophical work, The Communist Manifesto. We'll examine Marx's ideas. After we do an overview of Chinese history, we'll look at the fundamental flaw of a single-party political system, like he uh, instated, you know, Mao's Communist China was a single-party political system. Today, there are numerous political parties, but uh, only the Communist Party has any real power. The others seem to exist only to provide the illusion of a more evolved system of government in China, the illusion of diverse options, diverse opinions. We've covered some very communism-centric sucks before here. Time suck, the uh, Cambodia, Pol Pot suck, the Stalin suck, uh, the KGB suck, North Korea suck. We've touched on, uh, you know, many of these subjects or, you know, touched on communism, excuse me, in many of these subjects to the consternation of Bojangles. And today, of course, we'll have to dive back in. Uh, Let's start with a look at the history of China. Geographically, China is a very interesting place. It's home to the highest point in the world, Mount Everest which clocks in at 8,848 meters or 29,029 feet tall. Uh, Did you know that Mount Everest was in China? Uh, I did not, or I forgot. I always hear about Nepal when it comes to climbing Mount Everest because Mount Everest is also in Nepal. Uh, The peak of Mount Everest actually lies directly on the Nepal-China border. So you can start your Everest climb in Tibet, and many do. The Northern Base Camp in Tibet, actually the first base camp set up by climbers in 1920, the Chinese government approves uh, Everett expeditions, you know, all the time. Chinese, China is also uh, home to the third lowest depression in the world. 
the Turpin Depression, which sinks down negative uh, 154 meters or negative 505 feet into the ground. And it's not some small pit. It covers 19,000 square miles. A lot of interesting geography in China. It can get very hot in this depression, while temperatures on Everest can drop to below 40 degrees Fahrenheit without wind chill. Temperatures in the Turpin Depression can soar. In Turpin City, uh, July is the hottest month with a 24-hour average temperature of about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The record high is 118 degrees. That's that's pretty hot. Shit getting hot in Turpin. Uh, the climate in China varies greatly because of its size. It's huge. China borders 14 different countries. Russia, Mongolia, so many stands. Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, uh, Myanmar, Thailand, Vietnam, North Korea. Man, poor people of Myanmar uh, dealing with their own tyranny right now. A uh, topic and a tragedy for another day. Hope they hope they overthrow their military oppressors soon. Uh, anyway, there are so many different climates in China because, yeah, again, it's a massive country. Fourth largest in the world, right behind the U.S. Uh, the U.S. and China, thanks to Alaska, about the same size. The U.S. is 3.718 million square miles. China, just a little bit less, 3.75 million square miles, uh, 705. Just 13,000 square miles of difference. And much like there's a big difference between living in Florida and North Dakota in the States, a few more white sand beaches, string bikinis in Florida. Hail, Safina. Uh, there's a big difference between living in Northern and Southern China as well. Generally speaking, the North is colder, drier than the South, and the West is drier than the East. Now, let me throw some quick demographics at you. Realize we're just skimming things. Uh, fourth in total size, China is number one in population in the world. The most populous nation on earth for now, at least. 1.439 billion inhabitants. What a crazy number that is. Nearly one and a half billion people, roughly 60 million more than India. The U.S. is third biggest, big drop down to 328 million. Uh, I found that surprising, the difference there. Uh, over four times as many people in China as in the U.S. China is also home to a lot of different kinds of people, different types of people. I think in America, this gets lost. We tend to lump them all together and just think of the Chinese. Now, there's a lot of ethnic diver diversity within China. China is home to 56 different ethnic groups. The largest group by far, the Han people. They compose uh, roughly 91% of the entire population. China also linguistically a lot more diverse than many in America seem to understand. They don't just speak Chinese. 302 different languages spoken in China. 13 of them spoken by large numbers of people who are residents. Uh, most of China's population, roughly 70% speak Mandarin, the official language. Cantonese, another popular Chinese dialect, approximately 60 million Chinese speak it. It's the most common dialect spoken in Hong Kong. Uh, we'll get to the very interesting relationship between China and Hong Kong, uh, or at least touch on it a little bit later in this episode. China also very urban, very modern nation. When Mao was born, China was very rural, an agrarian nation, and then his communistic industrialization policies would shift the nation in an urban direction, and now it's the most urban-centric country in the world. China has 113 cities with over 1 million residents each. No other nation has anywhere near that many major cities. India is second with 42 such cities. The U.S. has 14. How crazy is that? In the U.S., we have 14 major cities of at least a million people. China has 99 more than that. So much traffic. That's what I think of. So much traffic. Uh, Shanghai, China's biggest city, third biggest in the world, has 26.3 million people. The world's biggest city, Tokyo, 37.4 million people. That's so many fucking people in one city. <laughs> the entire state of Idaho has less than 1.8 million people. 165,000 people total 
live in the county I live in, Kootenai County. Uh, less than 17,000 people live in the county where I grew up, Idaho County, which is ge- uh, geographically the largest county in Idaho, geographically way bigger than the geographic area of Tokyo. And there's 17,000 people compared to 37.4 million. Uh, let's move on now to a bit of Chinese history. Going into the full history of China would obviously take multiple episodes. It could be an entire multiple season long podcast of its own. Uh, just going to skim the surface here, like, like the surface of the surface. China's history is vast, partially because China is one of the world's oldest civilizations. The written history of China dates back to the Shang Dynasty over 3,000 years ago, started around 1600 uh, BCE. Pre-1600 BCE, China's history is charted mainly by oral legends and prehistoric evidence. Chinese civilization began along the Yellow River in the Shang era. The Yellow River is the second longest river in China, just under 3,400 miles. Out of the Shang era comes the earliest form of Chinese writing, oracle bones, or inscriptions on animal bones. Uh, Not creepy. Uh, With rough pictographic characters. Later traditional Chinese philosophies, such as Confucianism and Taoism, also known as Taoism, developed in the feudal Zhou Dynasty era as China expanded in territory and population. This era lasted from 1046 to 256 BCE. Confucius, believed to have lived from 551 BCE to 479. That dude, Socrates of the East, so much eternal wisdom. The teacher, politician, and philosopher was raised in poverty by his mother, would go on to become the most influential thinker in Chinese history. Confucius' teachings uh, encourage everybody to pursue self-cultivation as a means to moral perfection. Self-cultivation does not mean masturbation. It means trying to better yourself intellectually, uh, spiritually. The goal of the cultivation of this cultivation is to become a Junzi, translated as gentleman or superior person. Become a superior person, Mitzak, hail Nimrod. Confucius believes that a uh, Junzi is sincere, trustworthy, compassionate, humble, and righteous. And that a Junzi can also inspire others to improve themselves, starting a chain of moral development that eventually leads to social harmony. I love it. Walk the walk, show others the path of the righteous. Enough people do that. Maybe just maybe the whole world walks together or almost the whole world. You know, going to inevitably uh, be a few Dahmers, Kempers, Ted Bundys, Albert Fishes showing up. Just going to have to push them off a cliff you know, as you walk along the path and just keep heading down the trail. Uh, the idea of anyone being able to become a superior person was actually a very radical idea when Confucius proposed it. He was suggesting it in feudal in a feudal society uh, you know, where previous to him, people didn't think that uh, a, a peasant could become some noble, morally superior person. That was, you know, only the nobility had that option. Uh, Confucius strongly pushed self-improvement and the never-ending seeking of knowledge to learn as a way of life. One of his quotes, to learn something and rehearse it constantly. Is this indeed not a pleasure? I love that. He didn't preach to learn for the sake of just having a lot of information in your head. He stressed that the only point of gaining knowledge was to apply it to the world around you, make the world better. He said, to be fond of learning is to be near to knowledge. To practice with vigor is to be near to magnanimity. Mag- <laughs> magnanimity. There we go. Uh, which means in this context, generous, forgiving to those less fortunate than yourself. Use knowledge to help others rise up, not to further oppress others. That's what he's saying. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Confucius also preached the power of family. He believed that a virtuous life started at home. He said, surely proper behavior towards parents and elder brothers is the trunk of goodness. And he said a lot of other good shit, like so much. He deserves his own suck someday for sure. I think we could all probably learn a lot from the teachings of Confucius. His ideas would become central to Chinese culture over time and endorsed by the government. 
Mao Zedong, you know, many centuries later will be born into a world, you know, based largely on Confucius teaching teachings. And then Mao and the cultural revolution would see these teachings as outdated. Mao was like, I know a lot of you guys like Confucius, but you know what? Fuck that guy. Uh, he saw his ideas as incompatible with the China he wanted to make. Not surprised that Mao didn't like Confucius. Confucius preached continual learning, intellectualism, and Mao, like so many other communist leaders throughout history, did not want you getting too smart. Easy on the books, buddy. He didn't like academics in general most of his life, which is a wee bit of a red flag. You know, he persecuted academics and intellectuals. He encouraged his citizens not to read too many books. One of his most infamous quotes is, to read too many books is harmful. <laughs> Always be wary of the leader or the God that wants to keep you dumb. Any belief system worth believing in is okay with inspection and dissection. If it's not, it's because it's worried about what you'll find because it knows that at its core, it's not great. Ancient China eventually fractured into several warring kingdoms who battled for control of China for decades. The nation's reunification in 221 BCE marked the start of China's imperial age. The imperial era lasted from 2020 or 221 BCE all the way to 1912 CE from China's unification under Qin rule until the end of the Qing dynasty in 1912. With the uh, cyclical rise and fall of dynasties, Chinese civilization was cultivated and prospered in times of peace then reformed after rebellions and conquests, much like Europe and elsewhere. Between 221 BCE, 206 BCE, the Qin dynasty reigned. The Qin standardized regional uh, written scripts into a single national one, establishing an imperial academy to oversee the translated texts. The Qin dynasty also created the first superhighway on the Asian continent, the 500-mile straight road along the Ziwu mountain range. They did a lot to unify the people of China. In 125 BCE, during the Han dynasty, uh, Zhang Chen returned from travels abroad with a map of the area he'd covered, which reached as far as Afghanistan. His maps would lead to the super famous and historically very important international trade route known as the Silk Road. Trade with the East would go on to become so important to the West that they would discover the new world of North and South America while trying to establish, establish, what, what, how, how did that word come into my brain for establish? They were trying to establish some things, guys, <laughs> listen to me. I've clearly put a lot of work into this. No, uh, they were trying to establish faster trade routes, right, to the east, to China. In 868 CE, during the Tang Dynasty, the earliest known printed book that we know of showed up, the Diamond Sutra, an important Buddhist text made using block printing. In 1206, former su subject Genghis Khan unified all the tribes of Mongolia, founded the Mongol Khanate, and conquered an unprecedented swath of Asia. And then jumping ahead to 1260 CE, his grandson, Kublai Khan conquered the Song Dynasty and established the Yuan or Yohan, Yohan Dynasty, uh, unifying China and bringing Mongolia, Siberia, and parts of the Middle East and even Europe into the Chinese Empire. Kublai Khan introduced paper money, met with Marco Polo, brought the first Muslims to the country, even attempted to conquer Japan. In 1557, the Ming Dynasty expanded China's maritime trade to export silk and porcelain wares. Chinese merchants now immigrated to locations outside the realm for the first time. Now let's fast forward all the way to Mao's time. The Republican Revolution of 1911, led by Sun Yat-sen, ends the rule of the Qing dynasty. Mao is 17 when this happens. You know, he's born, he's born at the right time to witness revolution. Uh, the revolution ends over 2,000 years of imperial rule in China. Why did it happen? It happened for the reason almost all revolutions happen. A lot of citizens were very unhappy. On October 10th, 1911, revolutionaries in Wuchang launched an anti-Manchu insurrection. 
This was one of many attempts to overthrow the Qing dynasty between the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. All revolts had so far failed, and no one expected at first that this uprising would be any different, that it would create a domino effect, and that province after province and city after city, then soon the whole of China would declare its independence from the central government in Beijing. Why were people so sick of the monarchy? Because for one thing, China had been getting its fucking ass kicked over and over by foreigners in one battle after another for decades, and losing war after war tends not to bring prosperity to the people. The failure of the Qing dynasty to protect China from foreign aggression and to carry out extensive economic and political reforms had convinced a large number of intellectuals and members of the upper classes that the Chinese people needed to get rid of the monarchy if they wanted to create a new, stronger, more modern, better to live in China. China had lost two opium wars in the mid-19th century to Western powers led by Great Britain, resulting in the loss of Hong Kong and the forced opening of treaty ports for international trade and in large foreign concessions having to be made in major cities. China then lost the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895 to, uh, to Japan, with Imperial China being forced to relinquish control over still more territory. They lost Taiwan and parts of Manchuria. They lost control of Korea, a puppet state. The conclusion of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 firmly established Japanese uh, claims to former Chinese territory. It further weakened Qing rule. All these territorial losses combined with increasing imperialist demands from both Japan and the West, frustration with the government seen as foreign in a sense, since they were ethnically Manchu, a minority in China, and not of the majority Han people, and the desire to see a stronger, more internationally respected China fed a growing nationalism that spurred on revolutionary ideas that did then lead to a successful revolution. The Republic of China, this era would last from 1912 until 1949, an era marked by a lot of internal battles, a lot of fighting, a lot of instability before Mao took over. We'll cover a lot of that in the timeline. And again, this is a super brief overview. China has gone through many interesting periods, both of war and stability, innovation and expansion. Uh, now, before we dip into communist philosophy, let's see what Mao's China turned into. Let's look at modern China, its economics and its culture. China has been the world's fastest growing economy for the last 30 years. It's the world's largest manufacturer, merchandise trader, and holder of foreign exchange reserves. It's the largest producer of things many of us use every day. For example, steel, fertilizer, clothing, and toys. Clothing sticks out to me. We take it for granted. But do you ever really think about how crazy it is how much of our clothing comes from China? So much of what we wear here in America, so much made in China. So many people who will never visit China ever in their lives will wear primarily Chinese clothes for the entirety of their lives. Kind of a wild thought. Uh, since opening up to foreign trade and investment and implementing free market reforms in 1979, China's annual GDP growth, gross domestic product growth, uh, averaged 9.5% per year until 2019, a pace described by the World Bank as the fastest sustained expansion by a major economy in history. Uh, all that really fast expansion, by the way, happens after Mao dies. <laughs> so um, I think once we get into this suck, you're going you're gonna to not be surprised by that. China has done uh, a lot of great things, most of which has, have happened after Mao dies. Uh, and, and China is on pace to quickly replace America as the world's most powerful nation if it hasn't done so already. Uh, this explosive growth has enabled China, on average, to double its GDP every eight years. It's helped raise an estimated 800 million people out of poverty. This, in turn, has made China a major commercial partner for the U.S. China is the largest U.S. merchandise trading partner, biggest source of imports, and third largest U.S. export market. In short, 
fucking up our relationship with China. Uh, not going to be good. <laughs> uh, there's some people out there have that attitude of like, ah, fuck them. Ah, maybe not so fast. Maybe do some more homework before you take on that uh, tone. China, also the largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasury secretaries or <laughs> secretaries, U.S. Treasury securities, which helps fund the federal debt, keep U.S. interest rates low. Uh, does that make you nervous that they have so much control when it comes to our national debt? Makes me nervous. If China really wanted to throw down for whatever reason, fuck, they could wreak havoc on our lives. Uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China, very interesting. Currently, U.S. and China have mutual political, economic, and security interests, such as the proliferation of nuclear weapons. But there are unresolved concerns relating to the role of China's government and human rights issues. U.S.-China relations uh, has deteriorated sharply in recent years. I know uh, Biden doesn't seem to be a huge fan in, in, uh, in certain ways. Trump wasn't a huge fan. Uh, 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice initiated a China initiative to combat economic espionage. It subsequently launched a trade war against China under President Trump, banned U.S. companies from selling equipment to uh, Huawei, that massive Chinese tech company, increased visa restrictions on Chinese nationality students and scholars, and China has been designated a currency manipulator. And China, not surprisingly, has not enjoyed the bans and the accusations. Uh, this has led some scholars and policy experts to say that we might be headed into a second Cold War, a U.S. versus China showdown, which is gonna suck. Why can't Russia and China fight? instead of the U.S. and China, All right? China is a very formidable opponent. Not gonna lie, they scare me a little bit. Uh, back to the Chinese economy. China's economy on steroids has worked its way into Chinese culture. Chinese uh, citizens are the biggest travel spenders in the world. They spend $260 billion, U.S. dollars, every year, twice the spending that American travelers do. They also have way more people, okay? Uh, per person, I do want to point out that America still buys more shitty souvenirs abroad than anyone else. USA, USA, no one spends like we do. Now, what about culture? Who are the Chinese? As I mentioned, there are many ethnic groups in China, each with their own traditions and culture. Even within the majority Han ethnic group, there are smaller subgroups, each with their own distinct linguistic and regional cultural traditions. Uh, but don't have time today to get deep into the minutia of all these groups. We're going to have to paint uh, in broad strokes here. In terms of religion, Confucianism and Taoism, later joined by Buddhism, constitute the three teachings that have shaped Chinese culture more than any other teachings. During the Shang and Zhou dynasties, a theory of universality, universality, oh my God, universality <laughs> emerged, consisting of an allegiance to the Shen, a character that signifies a variety of gods and immortals who can be deities of the natural environment, personifications of cultural values, cultural heroes. The Chinese zodiac is derived from the four pillars, which traces its roots back to the Han dynasty um, back in the third century BCE, still frequently used in uh, feng shui astrology. Chinese writing falls into four columns. Each column relates to the year, month, day, and hour of birth. The first column refers to the year, animal, and the element. The second to the month, animal, and element. The third to the day one, you know, uh, the last one to the hour one. You get it. Uh, the year animal is popularly called the Chinese Zodiac, where each year is named after one of 12 animals, rat, ox, tiger, rabbit, dragon, snake, horse, goat, monkey, rooster, dog, and pig. Pigs again after last week. Uh, 2020 was the year of the rats. 2021 is the ox. Be an ox, meat sacks. Be honest and earnest. Be low key. Do not look for praise or be the center of attention. Eat a lot of grass as you graze in the pasture. Maybe don't do the last part. The year of the ox is supposed to be a good year. 
supposed to bring uh, career advancement, success in business, prosperity, wellness for all Zodiac signs. So ox up, motherfuckers, ox up. Uh, boys born this year are going to be reliable and trustworthy. They will feel great responsibility towards their families. They will be confident almost to the point of arrogance, but not quite. Going to be just confident, just the right amount of confidence. Uh, girls born this year, the outlook doesn't look as good. According to the Zodiac calendar, girls born this year are going to be fucking trash. They're going to be manipulative and sleazy. They're not going to give two shits about anyone other than themselves. They're going to kick you in the dick and act like it's your fault that their foot, hurt, foot hurts. Uh, girls born this year should be immediately thrown into a dumpster. And if you're mad, don't be mad at me. All right? Don't shoot the messenger. You'd be mad at the Chinese Zodiac. Okay. Come on. Come on. Gosh dang. That's too much. No, girls born in the year of the ox are going to be calm and gentle. They will also be stubborn and independent and never surrender to fate. <laughs> I love that I'm um, just, you know, like Zodiac stuff in general is always just so positive. <laughs> like, like I was looking through other years and it's always like, okay, there's going to be strong leadership and it's going to be uh, great athleticism and all, like always positive attributes. It's never like one year is like, oh, people are going to fucking suck this year. Going to be a bunch of liars born in the year of the snake. Going to be a bunch of weasels born in the year of the weasel. Uh, in traditional Chinese culture. It's believed that different people born under each animal sign supposedly have different personalities and practitioners of Chinese astrology consult uh, such traditional details and compatibilities to offer guidance in life or for love or marriage. Astrology way more popular in China than it is in the U.S. or the West in general. Uh, recent surveys from around 2019 estimate that some 80% of Han Chinese practice some kind of Chinese folk religion and Taoism. 10 to 16% are Buddhists, 3 to 4% are Christians, one to 2% are Muslims. Uh, surprised to hear about religion in China? Me too. While China is home to many religions, it's officially a secular nation. Uh, religion today tolerated much more in China than it was in Mao's time. Officially, five religions are allowed in China today. Buddhism, Catholicism, Taoism, Islam, and Protestantism. Scientology can, according to the Chinese government, quote, suck our fucking dicks. Feels aggressive, but I don't hate it. Uh, and of course they don't say that, but they don't allow it. Uh, even though it's not officially recognized, they do tolerate the practice of traditional Chinese beliefs. Mao would think the commies in China have gotten soft in recent years. During the Cultural Revolution, Mao would sick his red guards after anyone, anyone practicing these old faiths. Got brutal. As we learned in previous sucks on communism, authoritarian leaders don't want anyone practicing anything but continued devotion to the state. Uh, the Chinese New Year holiday is China's most important cultural and religious holiday. National holiday lasts 15 days is usually celebrated in January or February, not only in mainland China, but in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, the Philippines, and in many a Chinese home and neighborhood across the world. People decorate with red, not to recognize the Communist Party, but because uh, it's, you know, in traditional Chinese culture, it symbolizes happiness, good fortune, and joy. It's a time to gather together to honor one's deities and ancestors. Folk medicine, also an important part of Chinese culture, Chinese folk medicine today is built on a foundation of more than 2,500 years of Chinese medical practice. Chinese folk medicine includes various forms of herbal medicine, acupuncture, massage, exercise, and dietary therapy. Oh man, Chinese massage, one of my favorite parts of living in LA. So many just quality, solid uh, massage parlors, like Chinese massage. Lindsay and I would go to a Chinese uh, foot massage parlor, Bao's Massage on De Beverly Drive whenever we could. Uh, Lindsay, now I don't agree with this, so don't get mad at me. Lindsay would often pay a little bit extra to get jerked off at the end of her massage. I didn't, didn't feel right. I know a lot about the sex trafficking and stuff. And it just, I had moral problems with it. Uh, I don't always agree with her choices. Uh, I don't, I don't always like what my wife does with her penis. No, it wasn't a place like that at all. We would not go to a place like that. Uh, pretty sure my wife doesn't have a penis. 
You know, I, I'd say 99% sure. Uh, it, it was a foot massage place and oh, they were so nice there and they, they worked so hard. I hope they're doing well. Hope they're doing well. Uh, a lot of Chinese folk medicine rooted in philosophy based on yin-yangism, the relationship between yin and yang or balance within a person. I love, I love Eastern philosophy. Uh, it was later absorbed by Taoism. In general, disease is perceived as uh, disharmony or imbalance in the functions or interactions of yin, yang between the human body and the environment. Today, traditional Chinese medicine is widely used in China and has become increasingly popular and prevalent in Europe and North America. And then there's the food. God, I love good Chinese food. I don't even understand how someone could not like Chinese food. Uh, but, and, but there's a lot of different kinds of Chinese food. Most of the Chinese food we get in America has been heavily Americanized. It's, uh, you know, much more diverse in China. The eight cuisines of China are, bear with me, I have pronunciation guides for all these and have practiced them quite a bit, <laughs> but still not confident. Uh, Anhui, uh, Cantonese, uh, Huijian, Hunan, Jiangxi, uh, Shandong, uh, Sichuan, Zhejiang, uh, uh, all the different cuisines, all styles that have grown historically from the different availability of resources, varying climates and lifestyles of, again, a giant country. Uh, for example, Jiangxi cuisine mostly employs cooking techniques like braising and stewing, while uh, Sichuan cuisine involves more baking. Uh, hairy crab meat, currently a sought-after delicacy in Shanghai and many places around China, comes from lakes around and rivers around Shanghai. And yes, I did not just uh, flub that. It actually is hairy crab. Goofy-looking little dude with furry claws, like mittens. Uh, eating his sweet meat, all the rage right now in many parts of China. A lot of those hairy crabs all over rivers and lakes over there. Uh, sounds like a venereal disease, hairy crabs. <laughs> right? It's a weird looking little animal. You okay? You're doing a lot of scratching over there. Ah, sorry. <laughs> My crotch is on fire. Picked up some hairy crabs last weekend. My balls look like a war-torn battlefield right now. Just plumb covered in hairy crabs. I keep dipping them in a bucket of bleach, trying to hit them with a stick, but they are very hard to get rid of. I just go to a doctor and get some cream or something. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good call. That's probably better than my bleach bucket. Probably hurt less than a stick. God, I wish I could talk to somebody. And that's how you get rid of like uh, some kind of venereal disease. Oh, you get pubic lice? Oh, no, you just get a stick and you just fucking smack your balls a bunch of times. That'll get rid of them. Uh, Chinese cuisine has been a huge hit in the States for a long time. Not uh, sure hairy crabs have shown up on a lot, of American, a lot of American menus yet. But a lot of other dishes have been around for well over a century. According to the Chinese American Restaurant Association, the U.S. is currently home to more than 40,000 Chinese restaurants. That is more than all the McDonald's, KFCs, Pizza Huts, Taco Bells, and Wendy's in America combined. Why so many? The historical reason, pretty interesting. When the U.S. government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, fucked up, explicitly barring Chinese laborers from immigrating or becoming U.S. citizens, one of the only ways for Chinese immigrants to enter various states, including California, was to get merchant status by opening up a restaurant. That merchant status allowed Chinese business owners to travel to, uh, you know, to China and then come back to America, bringing back employees with them. And eventually it led to over 40,000 restaurants. So interesting bit of trivia there. Tiny bit more about Chinese culture before we learn uh, a bit about communism, then hit the timeline. Within Chinese families and in Chinese society, elder generations are revered and seen as important sources of wisdom and stability. Elders seem to be much more respected in Chinese culture than in American culture. Younger generations are expected to take care of their aging family members, and that doesn't mean sending them to a home. That means caring for them in your home. China actually passed a very progressive elderly rights law in 2013. This law legally mandates that adult children provide culturally expected support to their parents 60 years or older. 
Thank God we don't have that law here. <laughs> I, I love my mom, but I don't, I don't want to live with her. <laughs> uh, man, if we had that law here, I'd be forced to, uh, you know, have my dad move with me. How safe would that be? For me, Lindsay, the kids, you get it. If you don't, don't even worry about it. Uh, this is seen as a sign of success, actually, if you have uh, your, your elderly parents living with you in China. It's a sign of success to have multiple generations living under your roof. It's a symbol that you're wealthy enough to care for your elders. Uh, this tradition does not come from Mao Zedong. Oh, no, it does not. Mao Zedong did not respect his elders. During his cultural revolution, everything old was attacked by masses of students and workers, including senior citizens. Okay, history and culture lesson over now. So how did a great country, one of the oldest continuous civilizations on earth, tolerate a government that murdered tens of millions of its own people? Well, in short, they were tricked. They got bamboozled. And you're getting behind a one-party political system. And then those who are like, hey, wait a minute. I don't know if this is a good idea. Those people were eliminated. They were purged. That's what one-party systems across history uh, tend to do. Eliminate any and all opposing schools of thought and or dissent. Running a country with a single political party might just be one of the worst ideas meat sacks have ever come up with. From the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1991 to Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945 uh, to Italy under Benito Mussolini from 1922 to 1943 to Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, to various Eastern Bloc states, various Central and South American states, Cuba, uh, and single-party systems, a lot of people seem to end up always getting beat, murdered, starved, otherwise brutalized. Unless you're a high-ranking member uh, of that party, right, they tend to not be the most fun states to live in. And even if you are a high-ranking uh, high-ranking party member, you most likely live in a constant state of paranoia, right, afraid that your leader will have you purged for being a treasonous dissident at some point. Maybe you get too popular. Maybe other party members like you too much. Now you're a threat, right? So now you get purged. Maybe you're not popular enough. You're seen as not being loyal enough. You get purged for not being loyal enough, right? Maybe you don't laugh at the leader's uh, shitty joke hard enough. Then you get purged for that. Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't clap long enough at the end of one of his boring, stupid speeches. Or maybe, you know, the leader will just read like a treasonous glint in your eye they don't care for. And then, you know, then it's the some version of off with your head. I think of King Joffrey from Game of Thrones when I think of a ruthless totalitarian leader. Would you want to live under Joffrey's rule? No. Nah, well, you probably wouldn't want to live under some communist state head, uh, their rule either. And even the leader uh, themselves, they can't really enjoy this system of government. And that's one party government, right? Because they're always worried about getting assassinated. It's just an all around shitty system that only works in theory. Because only in theory do all meat sacks agree to all buy into the same system of government and then not question leadership and, you know, not care that no matter how hard they work, the state will just reward them uh, equally, equally as <laughs> their neighbors. Uh, it's, it's all just so fucking unreasonable. China under Mao, like so many nations before and after, suffered greatly because of this ideology. So why even consider it in the first place? Well, there are some pros if you squint real hard to find them. Proponents of communism, other benevolent-minded one-party systems have argued that multiple parties— either overtly represent or eventually dissolve into division along class lines. Fans of a single party system, you know, will state that, uh, you know, they encourage national unity, right? If there's only one party, then everyone in the nation has common ground. Ideally, this one party would be a vanguard of leaders that protect the nation. Theoretically, this one party could control the economy from a centralized position, possibly ending income inequality and class struggle. With no other parties to stand in their way, the government could get a lot of things done, ending bureaucratic red tape and checks and balances in theory. If the rulers of that party were benevolent minor deities or something, as opposed to humans, who historically are naturally inclined to crave power, wealth, be jealous, be greedy, prone to exploiting others to get what they want if there is no laws or any rival party to keep them in check. 
Communism doesn't work in reality, in my opinion, for the same reason that anarchy doesn't work in reality, right? As a whole, humans do not act their best when there are no other humans or laws to effectively keep them in check. Uh, I used to have a magnet on my fridge that read something to the effect of fear of prison keeps me from doing so many things. <laughs> and it's true. Would have definitely stole more in my youth than I did if I wasn't worried about the law. Uh, would have, you know, uh, driven a lot faster. Would be driving a lot faster now. Uh, what if I'm being totally honest, uh, when I was younger, would have driven drunk more. Shitty but true. If I wasn't worried about arrest. Right? In recent years, there are at least a few faces I would have definitely fucking punched so hard if I was not worried about legal repercussions. Not great again, but, you know, being honest. Uh, an understanding of legal consequences has kept me in check at various moments in my life. Checks and balances can be very, very good. Rival political parties can be really good when it keeps, uh, you know, when it comes to keeping governmental power in check. In the U.S., we have checks and balances, a safeguard putting in place any one governing body from becoming too powerful and running shit down the tubes. And while sometimes the way two parties slow down legislation is super annoying, I'd rather be annoyed than live in a system where there's nothing to check extremism. There are so many obvious cons to communism, a one-party system like communism. China would see a, a lot of them in Mao's time. First, first of all, if you're a person doesn't much like to be told what to do, this system is not fun to live in. One party means one stream of ideals, one dogma, one set of moral priorities, one unchecked body of leadership, one central overall plan. They own everything. They are the law. If you disagree, well, tough shit. You better keep your fucking mouth shut, traitor. If you vocally disagree, you might find yourself in prison and or killed by those in power. And by might, I mean almost certainly. And by those in power, it usually means one person elected to the head of the party, like Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. They become in charge of everyone else. And because no human is perfect, and some of them are downright sadistic and cruel. Mother! Peanut babata! Bobby Wheeler! Right? They often make people suffer or excuse suffering or excuse suffering in the name of the country and the party. Single party states can become hotbeds of corruption with high positions in the party going to personal favorites of whoever's in charge, whoever kisses the ring, whoever bends the knee with the most gusto, not whoever's most qualified. One party means no representation in government for those who don't agree with the party's ideals. It means if you're not down with the current plan, well, you have no one to fight for your interests. As you remember from the recent hellfire that was the Armenian genocide suck, one of the first steps of the Young Turks and their genocidal plan was to seize power and stop Armenian officials from being elected. They removed any representation those people had in the government and a lot of horror followed. Mao's cultural revolution only gave a voice to communism. No opposing ideas were tolerated. Uh, well, they were initially, but then Mao changed his mind, decided dissent was bad for China, i.e. it was bad for him, and dissenting voices were silenced. We'll go, we'll go over how he silenced them here soon in the timeline. First, a little more communism to discuss. Easy, Bojangles. Good God. Good boy, Bojangles. Just lifted up a leg and pissed on the desk. Gets worked up talking about all this. Uh, let's reintroduce ourselves to the ideas of Karl Marx and his co-writer, Frederick Engels. While it may be hard for us to believe that a lot of people were once really excited about communism, we have the benefit of seeing how this political theory has played out in reality multiple times. People who lived before us, especially in the early, early 19th century when Marx and Engels were writing, they didn't have that benefit. They only knew of communism as a theory. And on paper, if you ignore the crueler aspects of human nature, it does sound like it could lead to a utopia. Who was Karl Marx? Well, in his 20s and 30s, he owned and ran a popular Berlin roller rink after working in the rink business as a DJ for several years. Check out this old archival audio footage of him working at the roller rink. Hold on, how did, 
This is DJ Everything is Fine, aka Karl Marx here. Put on your skates and grab the partner, factory worker, factory owner. It makes no difference to me. You'll hear an Oscar Juice, hot new track, but also bougie. You'll like it. So much fun. That, of course, is nonsense. Uh, when I said DJ, how many of you expected to hear this button? It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Iceberg. <laughs> now, of course, of course, uh, Karl Marx was never a, a, a roller ring DJ. <laughs> I wish. He was a German philosopher, economist, historian, sociologist, political theorist, journalist, socialist, revolutionary. Uh, he would change the world with his ideas for better or for worse. I think worse. You, you may think better. Uh, Karl Marx was born in Trier, Prussia in 1818, the son of a Jewish lawyer who converted to Lutheranism. He studied law and philosophy at the universities of Berlin and Jena. In 1842, Marx became editor of the, not confident about how to say this, Rheinischen Zeitung, uh, a liberal democratic newspaper in Cologne. The newspaper grew considerably under his guidance. But then in 1843, Prussian authorities shut it down for him being too outspoken. So Marx moved to Paris to co-edit a new, much more political publication. In Paris, Marx befriended Frederick Engels, a fellow former roller rink DJ. Uh, no, a fellow Prussian who shared his views and who is to become a lifelong collaborator. In 1845, Marx was expelled from France, settled in Brussels, where he renounced his Prussian nationality and was joined by Engels. And there they would write their most famous work, The Communist Manifesto. I love how generally when you hear about their work, you often only hear about Karl Marx, right? Not Frederick Engels. It's like Engels was the Art Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel, the John Oates of Holland Oates. Uh, actually, while the two of them did work together a lot on communist philosophy for this specific book, even Engels said Marx did all the heavy lifting and that the core of the book's main tenets come from Marx. Marx's main idea was to take power from the rich and give it to the masses over the course of a revolution. The revolution would bring about a new political, economic, and social system that eliminated class struggle and inequality once and for all. Marx summarized his approach in the first line of chapter one of the Communist Manifesto, published in February 1848. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And he's not wrong. The rich versus the poor, the haves versus the have-nots, that's always been the heart of human struggle. And in general, governments have leaned on protecting the haves more than the have-nots. But has there really been another way to do it, like a better way to do it? If you're some monarch trying to launch an invasion or protect your borders from other invaders, you know, for example, you need funds to, to raise an army, to arm an army, right? Who are you going to get those funds from? The haves or the have-nots? Kings consulted the nobility and the wealthy on matters because kings needed their money to keep their kingdoms going. Uh, that system may not seem fair if you're one of the have-nots. It simply just might not be fair, but that doesn't mean it's not the most effective way to do it. Uh, the Communist Manifesto would go on to become one of the most influential books of all time. Marx argued that capitalism, like previous socioeconomic systems, would inevitably produce internal tensions that would lead to its destruction. Just as capitalism replaced feudalism, he believed socialism would in turn replace capitalism and lead to a stateless, classless society called pure communism. He wrote that this would emerge after a transitional period called the dictatorship of the proletariat, a period sometimes referred to as the worker state or workers' democracy. Marx argued that the means of production and of exchange, basically the money and how money is generated, belong to the bourgeoisie, uh, which held on to deep class structures rooted in the feudal system. They struggled with the working class or the proletariat, which was the true source of all this money. 
Basically, he thought that the person that did the work, i.e. the factory worker, deserved to see the money more than the factory owner, i.e. the bourgeoisie, which basically only had money because they were lucky enough to be born on the right side of the remnants of the feudal system. Uh, cue many of today's small business owners hearing this, rolling their eyes and thinking about how many hours they have to work to launch a small business and keep it afloat and how much risk they have to take. Uh, things have changed a bit since Marx's time. We're not, we're not all inheritors of the feudal system anymore. Uh, Marx believed that society should and would be run by the people who make the goods and do the services, not by the people who profit off the labor of others. And I don't feel like Marx had a real good understanding of how upper management works. Like how in a factory, for example, it doesn't matter how many goods are being made if deals haven't been put in place to sell those goods for profitable rates. Uh, not taking anything away from the labor of the worker on the assembly line, but there is a, a, a bit more to business than just making the shit. Uh, Marx wrote a scathing three-volume critique of capitalism called Das Kapital in September of 1867. He did not think a communist revolution would be easy, but he did think that it needed to happen and that it would be violent. Communism, not just Marx's brand, but in many of its uh, different iterations, is based on the ideas of common ownership and the absence of social classes, money, in the state. Remember, according to Marx, after the means of production have been appropriately distributed, there's no need for a state anymore. People can just chill out. And again, I get the appeal of this theory, right? We all pull our money together, we build the business that we need, and we all share equally in the fruits of our collective labors. But the problem is not everyone's labor is equal. If you're communist worker A, and you're busting your fucking ass, picking and peeling some potatoes or whatever. And then communist worker B is picking and peeling about, I don't know, 20% of the taters, you know, that you're working on. And then say, uh, they're always complaining about something. Uh, their feet always hurt, right? Their boobs are sweaty. I don't know, they have gas again. They feel a little off. Uh, can you help pick up my slack again? And then day after day, you know, week after week, month after month, they get the same food rations you do. They get, they get the same clothes to wear. They sleep in the same bed. They live in the exact same apartment layout. After years of that, are you really going to think, this is fucking great. God, this feels fair. Or are you going to start to despise worker B? Or are you going to start slacking too? You know, because why should you bust your ass day after day if you don't get any more in life, you know, than this other person not busting their ass? Ah, stuff annoys me. Marx, Marx annoys me so much, admittedly. I'll shut up now about communism. Just try, try and get to the timeline. So hard for me to be objective and not constantly editorialize. I admittedly, uh, think that Karl Marx was a very well-read, very intelligent fucking fool. Uh, these ideas of Marx's grew quite a fan base, including many notable intellectuals of the day, many still around today. It seemed like a scientific approach to organizing society that would ultimately create an egalitarian society, one of equality of opportunity, equality of outcomes. One of the most famous slogans for communism is from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And that comes from Karl Marx in his 1875 critique of the Gotha program. Another aspect of Marxism that would especially appeal to Mao Zedong is, uh, uh, you know, revolution. The revolution is necessary. And it's a revolution uh, brought about by the workers. The revolution would, of course, be centered around a single party until the eventual dissolution of the state in Marxist theory. And then the single party wouldn't listen to any opposition. Uh, the revolution would be led by enlightened leaders known as the vanguard of the proletariat. Mao thought he was one of these who understood the class structure of society, who would unite the working class by raising awareness and class consciousness. Mao would unite the working class. Ultimately, Marx thought communism would spread to become a global movement, the entire planet governed by one party that would lead to it becoming a utopia. Welcome to the new world order, the real Illuminati. This one world government idea would scare the shit out of capitalist government, scares a lot of people still today, right? Uh, <laughs> It would lead to the U.S. military-industrial complex largely being built out of fear of the red spread 
that the Cold War was based on, this utopia of Marxists would have no place for a lot of things, uh, particularly no place for religion. So that doesn't uh, make it feel like a utopia in a lot of people's minds. Marxism, at least expressed by Karl Marx, not a fan of religion. He didn't think religious faith was particularly useful uh, as an institution in his system of revolution. Fears about communism throughout the Cold War would stoke the fires of the modern evangelical movement in the U.S. Uh, In the early days of communism, creating a state without a religion was just as exciting as abolishing private property and abolishing class hierarchies. The Bolsheviks, uh, who paved the way for communism in Russia during the Russian Revolution of 1917, super excited about it. Under Lenin and Stalin, new atheist organizations like a League of the Militant Godless waged war on religious institutions. Although churches and monasteries were technically legal, officials found ways of shutting them down early in the uh, in Soviet Union. They transformed some of them to, into cathedrals of atheism. In 1931, Moscow's Christ, the Savior Cathedral, was blown up in a public display for all the world to see. Stalin basically just completely got rid of religion in the Soviet Union. They, t- they took it pretty far. Marx has a famous quote in which he calls religion the opium of the people. He meant that religion was essentially a drug that distracts the masses from their immediate suffering, giving them illusions about the future uh, that give them just enough strength to keep toiling for their rich oppressors. Now, this is one of the few areas where Marx and I agree somewhat. Uh, I don't think an opium of the people notion necessarily invalidates religion, though. I don't think it disproves religion. I don't think uh, all of the world's religious use religion as a type of spiritual opiate. But I do think certain unscrupulous people absolutely enslave others in religion and then use it as a whip to beat them with and keep them subservient. Uh, And that angers me and Nimrod greatly. Looking at you, Benny Hinn. Looking at you, Pastor Kenny Copeland, you fucking con artists. Keeping your flocks tied up in fear and poverty while you travel around in a Learjet, you fuckers. Uh, Mao's interpretation of Marx's view on religion would change China in a uniquely terrifying way. We'll get to that in the timeline. Let's wrap up communism now. Just as there are uh, of every other imperfect human system, there are many criticisms of communism and people who fight back those criticisms with their own pro-communist theories. Love it or hate it, communism has a particularly bloody record that's hard to rationalize though. Those who do try to rationalize all the bloodshed and death away usually point to this idea that countries like the Soviet Union, China, and Cambodia have not practiced true communism. Critics think the death tolls just speak for themselves. Uh, in 2017, the Wall Street Journal ran an article titled 100 Years of Communism, 100 Million Dead. They totaled numbers ranging from 65 to 95 million deaths due to various communist regimes, malevolence, and or ineptitude. And that's not counting communists killed in action fighting in wars against other nations. That's almost 100 million dead due to communist policies of either direct elimination or elimination via ineptitude. Right, that have led to like mass starvation and other tragedies. Okay, before we jump into the timeline now, uh, know that communism and socialism are not one and the same, not at all. I think that's a big misnomer. Today's socialist countries do not participate in a revolution every time they want to change something. Instead, socialist reform takes place within the existing social and political structures. Also, modern socialist nations allow for a lot more economic diversity and freedom than communism does. Scandinavian countries aren't, uh, you know, totally socialist per se, but they do have a lot of socialist institutions. They have an extremely well-developed model of social democracy with a generous social safety net, high quality public services, strong regulations on private business to protect both individuals and the community, which I think is pretty beautiful. People are free to practice whatever religion they want, uh, to work and live where they want. They can build wealth. They do build wealth. uh, And they enjoy consistently the highest standards of living in the world right? Because they're not constantly worried about uh, losing everything if they get sick uh, or, you know, mortgaging their future to pay for their education. Many in America still hear, still hear the word socialism and cringe. 
damn marks and people like Stalin and Mao Zedong. They just put so much stank on it. Don't believe the hype. Socialized medical system, higher education system would not send us on a path of us uh, all end up ending up wearing the same uniforms, hailing the same chairman of some people's republic. Okay, enough commie pontification now. Now that we have China and communism fresh in our mind muscles, let's get to know Mao. I don't think you're going to like him. Let's get to know some of what made China ripe for Mao's blend of Soviet-informed communism. Time to jump into this week's bloody Time Suck timeline, right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Now it's time for Mao. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. On December 26, 1893, Mao Zedong is born in the small village of Shahaoshan in Hunan province, a mountainous region in southern China. He's born into a middle-class family. Although he would later describe his father as a rich peasant, his family clearly had to work hard for a living. His father was a farmer, a grain dealer. His mother ran the household. He would have two brothers who would follow him into communism, one two years younger, another 11 years younger, and two sisters who would die in infancy. Mao was a voracious reader as a child, beginning at the age of eight. Mao attended his native village's primary school, where he acquired a basic knowledge of the Confucian classic texts. Young Mao was a mama's boy who disliked his father, whom he considered to be overly authoritarian and bullying. Huh. Did his father get tens of millions of people killed and kill those who disobeyed him? Funny he would make those complaints. Uh, Mao would say that acting meekly did little to relieve his father's rage, so he soon stopped being meek and engaged his father's anger with his own. He began to stand up to his father early on, not common in a culture that placed such a high value on respecting and being obedient towards your parents, especially your father. He began to lean towards rebellion early on. He also began to read about rebellions. Mao liked popular historical novels about rebellions starring unconventional military heroes. He was a born dissident, or this is a lot of propaganda. A lot of information about Mao's childhood comes from Mao, or from people who would be put to death if they didn't write good things about Mao. As a youth, he was expelled from several schools and even ran away from home for a few days. Rebel, rebel. Uh, he also didn't get along with his teachers when he was young. Sounds like he just didn't care for authority in general. I get it. Uh, his feelings towards the teachers would lead to a lifelong disregard for intellectuals, many of whom he would later purge from Chinese society. At the age of 13, five years after education in the local primary school, he leaves school, returns to the family farm. Uh, backing up a bit to 1894, the year after Mao's birth, the Qing dynasty clashes with Japan over Korea. Korea had long been China's most important puppet and client state, and its strategic location opposite the Japanese islands and its abundant natural resources of coal and iron had long attracted Japanese interest. This would lead to the first uh, Sino-Japanese War declared on August 1st, 1894. 
The Japanese, fresh off a modernization campaign, were better equipped and prepared for this war. In March of 1895, the Japanese successfully invaded Shandong province and Manchuria. The Chinese then pleaded with them for peace, and the Japanese were like, you can have your peace after you give us a lot of your shit. And the Chinese were like, God, I fucking hate you guys. But okay, fine. Take some of our shit. But can we please keep the rest of our shit? And Japan was like, all right, cool. For now, bitches. And the Treaty of Shimaniskia, or I'm sorry, Shima Naseki. Naseki. I don't know where the hell I got that first word. Shima Naseki. Uh, China recognized the independence of Korea and ceded Taiwan. The, adjo the adjoining uh, Pescadaris, a small group of islands in the Taiwan Strait, and the Laoduang uh, Peninsula in Manchuria to Japan. So they have to give a lot of their stuff to Japan. China's loss marked the emergence of Japan as a major world power and demonstrated to the rest of the world the recent weakness of the once mighty Chinese empire. It was an embarrassing defeat for China, a blow to national pride and morale. Uh, one blow of many that would sow the seeds of revolution against the Qing dynasty. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion takes place. Boxers was a name that foreigners gave to a Chinese secret society known as the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. That's a badass band name, right? That'd be a cool album name. Uh, the boxers were called this due to public displays they would put on a fighting sk uh, skill. Uh, the group practiced boxing and calisthenic rituals in the belief that this made them invulnerable to attack. They couldn't be shot. The, orig the original aim of this group was the destruction of the Qing dynasty and also of the Westerners who were showing up in more Chinese cities to trade with China. Westerners whose spheres of influence were growing because the Chinese government was powerless to stop them. They appeased them because if they didn't, they'd be destroyed by them. A further example of how comparatively weak China had become. More continual blows to national pride. Despite the group's opposition to the Qing dynasty, the same dynasty would end up basically supporting them because they came to believe that boxer rituals did actually make the boxers impervious to bullets. Huh. Seems like they could have figured out that this was definitely not true pretty easily by putting on just one little target practice demonstration, right? Just, just some boxers out there. You cannot shoot us! And then cue several royal soldiers immediately and easily shooting the shit out of them. Damn it! We must have done our dance moves wrong. Please allow us, to, who are still alive, to go back to our choreography board and troubleshoot this. Uh, government officials figured that the boxers could do the military's dirty work for them, beat back foreign invaders. In spite of protests by Western powers who understandably did not like seeing militant groups like the boxers uh, who were openly hostile to their presence, putting on public demonstrations of fighting skills, imperial officials, along with Empress Chichi, uh, the ruling Empress Dowager, continued to encourage the group. By late 1899, the boxers were openly attacking Chinese Christians and Western missionaries. And then Western governments were like, uh, not cool. What the fuck? Really not cool. Are you guys just going to keep looking the other way? Well, that shit happens. And then Imperial China was like, when, uh, when what happens? I don't even know what you're talking about. By May of 1900, boxer bands were actually roaming the countryside around the capital of Beijing in bloodthirsty mobs. This is like out of like one of the Purge movies. Doing as they pleased with Westerners. In Beijing, the boxers burned churches, burned foreign residences, killed suspected Christians, uh, Chinese Christians on sight. And then the foreign powers are like, oh, come on! Are you fucking kidding me? You're really not going to punish them? You're not going to stop this? And Imperial China was like, uh, who? What are, you, what are you talking about? Punish who? And the foreign powers are like, those people right behind you, setting that church on fire right there. And then Imperial China was like, uh, not, not. It looks to me like they're trying to put that fire out. And foreign powers like, dude, they're holding the torches. And Imperial China was like, nah, maybe, I don't know, maybe fighting with fire, I don't know. Imperial China loved the boxers, right? They were doing what they would like to do to foreign powers. The group was given almost blanket permission to do what they wanted. And then the group was officially endorsed by the crown. And they kind of fucked up here. 
On June 18th, the Empress Dowager ordered that all foreigners be killed. The German minister was murdered. Other foreign ministers and their families and staff, together with hundreds of Chinese Christians, were besieged in their, in their legation quarters and in the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Beijing. And then the empress, who endorsed all this violence, quickly regretted that endorsement. Payback was now guaranteed. Foreign powers were like, oh, you done did it. You done rattled the hornet's nest one too many times, motherfuckers. Now we're going to come knock some heads. An international force of some 19,000 troops is assembled. Most of the soldiers coming from Japan and Russia, also from Britain, the U.S., France, Austro-Hungary, or Austro-Hungary, and Italy. On August 14th, 1900, that force captures Beijing, killing around 3,000 boxers. Yes, they were not bulletproof after all. And they relieved the foreigners and Christians who had been besieged there since June 20th. After extensive discussions, some protocols were signed in September of 1901, ending the hostilities and providing for reparations to be made to the foreign powers. During the Boxer Rebellion as a whole, a total of 136 Protestant missionaries and 53 children are killed, 47 Catholic priests and nuns, 30,000 Chinese Catholics, 2,000 Chinese Protestants, and two to 400 of the 700 Russian Orthodox Christians in Beijing estimated to have been killed. Uh, the sanctions permanently weaken now the Qing Dynasty's rule. The Empress Dowager, her court, they flee westward to Xi'an in uh, Shanxi province. Imperial China grows weaker, brings further shame to China. Whispers of a revolution begin. If the empress isn't strong enough to stand up to Western powers in Japan, well, then maybe someone else should be running shit. In 1907, Mao's father arranges a marriage for him. Mao is only 14. Some sources say 13. His bride-to-be is 20. And in another fit of teenage rebellion, Mao refuses to acknowledge his bride even after she moves into the family home. This is a big disrespect to dad. Awkward for the bride-to-be. Hello, husband. Nope, out of my room, witch. Get out of here. Uh, Mao wants off the farm. He wants to return to school. Two years later, at the age of 16, he leaves home to attend school in the Hunanese capital of Shangsha. Uh, it was here that Mao would begin to experience the powerful revolutionary wave spreading through Chinese society. In Shangsha, Mao reads the works of nationalist reformers such as uh, Kang Yue. As he watches the Qing dynasty crumble, he is enamored with admiration for strong emperors from early periods of Chinese history, and he's disgusted by recent leadership. Weak sauce! Right? He's a member of a generation who grew up reading stories about how mighty China once was while simultaneously watching China get their asses kicked continually. The Xinghai Revolution of 1911, next big event in the timeline, fueled by Western-educated revolutionary Sun Yat-sen, uh, they overthrow the Qing dynasty, bringing an end to two millennia of royal rule and theoretically establishing a republican government. Despite overthrowing the government, the revolution is far from over. Really, it had just begun. Decades of fighting and fracturing ensue. As the dynasty crumbles, rebellion breaks out in uh, Shangsa. Mao enlists in Sun Yat-sen's army, but not as a soldier. He would spend six months in the Shangsa library, absorbing Chinese translations of Western classics. You know, for a guy who would uh, later openly persecute academics and encourage others not to read too much, he sure spends a lot of time around books. At some point, he must have read enough to understand that if others read as much as he did, and learned what he'd learned, they would not accept a lot of his uh, bullshit ideas. Sun Yat-sen officially takes control in 1912, announcing the Republic of China, and many will challenge his rule. Really glossing over his life, by the way. We could do a full suck on Sun Yat-sen. A powerful general would declare himself emperor in 1915 in a failed attempt to overthrow Yat-sen. Another general will attempt uh, another abortive restoration of the imperial Manchu court in 1917. Uh, 1913, Mao enters a teaching a teacher training college in Changsha where he establishes several student organizations. 
Over the next couple of years, touring Hunan province on foot, he becomes highly critical of China's past governance. The way forward, he believes, will involve combining aspects of both Western and Chinese thought. Soon, he will be introduced to communist ideals, and then those will become the only thoughts that matter. September of 1915 marks a big turning point for China. The new culture movement begins. It starts when Shen Dushou, a Chinese revolutionary socialist, educator, and philosopher, and later a co-founder of the Communist Party of China, launches the magazine Youth in Shanghai. Inspired by the magazine, a group of young activists attack traditional Confucian ideas and exalt Western ideas, particularly science and democracy. They want to sweep away, quote, the old, in particular, the old thoughts, old morality, and old culture of Confucianism, and replace it with a new or Western-inspired culture. To win this battle, new culture movement intellectuals raise the twin, banner, twin banners of democracy and science, which they affectionately dub Mr. Democracy and Mr. Science. Not kidding. Chen, one of the movement's most influential leaders, lays out the stakes of the struggle in no uncertain terms, saying, we now firmly believe that only these two misters can cure all the darkness in Chinese politics, morality, academia, and ideology. In support of these two misters, we will endure any governmental oppression, the attacks, derision, and taunts of society even unto death. Mao is now surrounded by revolutionaries filling the air in his head with new ideas and possibilities. Also, <laughs> is it funny to you like it's funny to me that they call uh, the Mr. Democracy and Mr. Science? I mean, I know it's affectionately, but it still just uh, seems so goofy. It, it gives like a puppet show vibe to me <laughs> for some reason. So like their protests and, you know, demonstrations. I, like, I, like I picture Chen with Mr. Democracy on one hand, like two sock puppets, and then Mr. Science on the other. Hey, Mr. Democracy, do you want to live by the old ways any longer? No, I sure don't, Mr. Science. I want to live the Western way. Me too, Mr. Democracy. So let's get Western. Cowboy hats, six shooters, and trusty steeds, oh my. Uh, I'm not sure that's a... I'm not sure that's what we were thinking regarding Western ways, Mr. Science. Agree to disagree, Mr. Democracy. I'm cowboying up. I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. And I'm wanted, wanted, dead or alive. Are, are you feeling okay, Mr. Science? I feel great. <laughs> I just got a lot of songs in my heart. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on anymore, uh, Mr. Sass. Uh, sorry, I got a little too into that. Like I did that for a long time. <laughs> sorry. That was a lot like Woody and also Mama Picton. I know. is the only high voice I have. Chen loathed the core principles of Confucian thought, particularly the three cardinal guides. Rulers guide subjects, fathers guide sons, and husbands guide wives. And the five constant virtues of benevolence, righteousness, propriety, knowledge, and sincerity. Dismissing these as indicative of so-called slave morality and man-eating ethics, Chen argues they're incompatible with republicanism. We don't, we don't need righteousness and benevolence. Get the fuck out of here. Knowledge? Pfft, stupid. Uh, led by Chen, an American-educated scholar, uh, Hu Shi, the new culture movement intellectuals propose a new naturalistic vernacular writing style, replacing the difficult 2,000-year-old classical style. Their interests span liberalism, pragmatism, nationalism, anarchism, socialism, all with the purpose of criticizing traditional Chinese philosophy, religion, and politics. Out with the old, in with the new vibes. Giving people tired of the shame brought, you know, brought upon uh, China by the old regime, hope for better days ahead. Around this time, Mao is introduced to the ideas of Marx, 
He likes those ideas. He, he likes them a whole bunch. He's a strong Marx boner. Just gets uh, some rock hard communism wood. 1917, the new culture movement picks up steam when Chao Yunpei is appointed president of Peking University. Chao had passed the highest level of his civil service examination in 1890, became one of the youngest successful candidates in the history of the imperial examination system. Smart academic. 1904, he'd helped organize and became the first president of the Restor uh, Restoration Society, a revolutionary group dedicated to the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. So he's a real revolutionary. From 1913 to 1916, he'd organized a work-study program in which more than 2,000 Chinese students and laborers traveled to France to study in the schools there and work in the factories. Many future Chinese leaders were trained in this program, including Zhao and Lai, who helped organize one of the first Chinese communist cells while in Paris. And now Chao was in charge of Peking University, the most prestigious school in China, corrupting China's best and brightest minds with new ideas, sowing the seeds of further revolution in the nation's future leaders. As president of the university, Chao vowed to follow the principle of freedom of thought and incorporate the attitude of learning from diverse sources, sources like communism. He threw open Peking University's gates to intellectuals of all stripes, recruited renowned and iconoclastic figures, as well as conservative thinkers to join the school's, uh, excuse me, faculty. Most of the future leaders of China, including the young Mao, uh, who was employed as a clerk in the library, were associated in some way with the university and Chao's ideas during this period. Uh, Chen Dushou, the old puppet master, now brings his magazine, by that point renamed New Youth, with him to Beijing, where it quickly gathers popularity among the staff and students. Political instability brings even more converts to the new culture movement, as over the next decade, warlords carve up the country in their own quest for power in the ashes of imperial China. As the country deunifies and fractures into pieces, Chinese intellectuals quickly realize that they would need to bring about a cultural and ideological awakening to humpty dumpty everything back together, put all the pieces back together. As Chen put it, in order to consolidate the republic, all the old anti-republican ideas in the national mind must be first swept away one by one. Mao Zedong's taking notes. Fucking get rid of everything. Noted. All ideas currently fucking suck. Noted. Kill everyone who still thinks today's ideas are good. Noted. Uh, later 1917, the Russian Revolution begins. Now Mao will uh, get to see the beginnings of communism in action. Put on the world stage for all to watch. The Bolshevik Revolution will easily be one of the most explosive political events of the 20th century. On November 6th and 7th, 1917, leftist revolutionaries led by a Bolshevik party leader, Vladimir Lenin, launch a nearly bloodless coup against the Duma's provisional government. The Bolsheviks will, of course, later become the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the world's first communist nation. Lenin calls for a Soviet government that will be ruled directly by councils of soldiers, peasants, and workers. And that will kind of happen, but not really. A council will form. Lenin will emerge as leader. He'll then die in seven years. And three years later, Joseph, fuck that guy, Stalin, will emerge from a power struggle as the new communist leader. And soon millions of the Russian soldiers, peasants, and workers the party fought to empower will endure horrific oppression and die horrible deaths. Uh, we covered more of the Russian Revolution on our suck on Rasputin and also in the suck of Stalin. Uh, with the success of the Bolshevik Revolution, suddenly communism is no longer a theory. Mao follows the revolution and the wheels begin to turn towards really trying to bring communism to China. In 1918, Mao graduates from the fourth normal school of Changsha. I love the phrase normal school. It actually just means a state university for teachers uh, where you just, you know, you get a teaching degree. Uh, just an example of kind of a, doesn't quite translate correctly to English. Uh, makes it sound in English like Mao had to be reformed, right? Like he was sent to some Alon school type place from that suck a few weeks ago. Some place where Mao was broken down and rebuilt into whatever they considered to be normal. 
There's people screaming at him. What the fuck are you doing, Mao? You abnormal piece of shit. You're a weirdo. You have a bunch of terrible, abnormal ideas floating around in your shitty brain. Why didn't you marry that 20-year-old, right? When you were 14, like a normal boy. Like your father wanted, you fucking freak. Confucius says he hates your weak guts, Mao. Anyway, Mao qualifies to become a teacher. <laughs> Just thinking what my neighbors would think right now if they heard that rant. That's a very odd rant to hear out of context. Uh, he qualifies to become a teacher, but instead of remaining in Changsha, he decides to head to the city of Beijing, the big city. In Beijing, Mao will get caught up in the big May 4th movement. May 4th, 1919, very important day in Chinese history. A very important day, uh, both for Mao and, you know, and Chinese culture as a whole. It's a day sometimes referred to as the start of modern Chinese history. The day was the peak of the broad cultural and ideological current that saw the political awakening of China's young, growing student population, a population that wanted to mount an intellectual attack on the foundations of traditional Chinese culture. On the afternoon of May 4th, 1919, over 3,000 students from universities and colleges near Beijing assemble in front of Tiananmen, a, monument, or a monumental gate just north of the now infamous Tiananmen Square in the central part of the city. They're protesting a recent development in international politics. In 1919, the Versailles or at the Versailles Peace Conference after World War I, the Allied powers announced that they had no plans of returning lost territory to China, as some had expected, and they handed over German possessions to Shandong province, or in Shandong province, to the Japanese instead of to the Chinese. They did this even though an estimated 3,000 Chinese laborers who served on the Western Front with Allied forces in World War I had died before returning home, and as many as 30,000 died serving on the Eastern Front, China's contribution to an Allied victory is then just ignored. The U.S., Britain, and France ignored the Chinese delegation's protests and transferred Germany's colonial concessions in China, including the eastern port city of Qingdao and the surrounding province of Shandong to Japan. Another tough blow to national pride in China. Many of China's residents, including students, are furious, right? The imperialists are out, but China still getting shit on. Anti-foreigner resentment grows after this decision is announced. Crowds of students start gathering. They come brandishing posters, shouting slogans like protect China's sovereignty, uh, return Qingdao. The students demand their government refuse to sign the peace treaty and punish the three officials uh, involved, the delegates who attended the Versailles Peace Conference for having betrayed in their eyes China's national interests. The students were so enraged, they burned the house of the Minister of Communications. They assaulted China's minister to Japan, uh, both, you know, like a pro-Japanese official. Over the weeks, uh, following weeks, demonstrations occur throughout China. Several students die or are wounded in these incidents. More than a thousand are arrested. In big city strikes and boycotts against Japanese goods uh, are begun by students. They last for several months. For an entire week, beginning on June 5th, merchants and workers in Shanghai and many other cities go on strike in support of the students. Faced with a growing tide of activism, the government acquiesces to the protests and three pro-Japanese officials are dismissed and China refuses to sign a peace treaty with Germany. They also release some protesters they have in custody, some student protesters. The new culture movement, aka the May 4th movement, has its first real victory. Caught up in some exciting and productive student activism, Mao gravitates now more towards Marxism. In September of 1920, Mao returns to Changsha and becomes the principal of a primary school there. And in the following month in October, he organizes a branch of the Socialist Youth League there. That winter, he marries Yang Kuai, the daughter of his former ethics teacher, and they get it on. Sexual intercourse, penis, and vagina, giving each other handshakes between the sheets, if you know what I mean. All right, so I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, from July 23rd to August 2nd, 1921, the first National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party is held in Shanghai and in Jiaxing. Mao is one of the 12 delegates, early adopter, 
one of the first communist leaders in China. At this conference, the Communist Party of China is officially formed. It sees itself as both a political party and as a revolutionary movement. And it ties itself to that May 4th movement we just talked about. Among the revolutionaries who found the CCP is old Chen Dushou, president of Peking University. Chen was very inspired by the Ru Russian Revolution of 1917. Mao works with the show, and these two commies set up the Changsha branch of the newly formed Chinese Communist Party. The following year, he becomes general secretary for Hunan, uh, for that province. At this time, the national membership of the CCP is less than 60 people. So I'm throwing out a lot of cool titles, but there's only about 60 people. 28 years later, organized and indoctrinated by Mao, the Chinese Communist Party will conquer the largest nation on earth. And it took a long time for them, right? This revolution took a lot longer than the one in Russia. In the turmoil of 1920s China, CCP members, including Mao Zedong, began organizing labor unions in the cities. Then the CCP joins with the Nationalist Party in 1923. Slightly different ideologies. Uh, strength in numbers. And the alliance proves enormously successful at first. They're both... At that time, my son kind of disagrees. I think they're both communist organizations. The uh, Kuomintang, KMT, was a nationalist revolutionary party that has uh, been supported by the Soviet Union. It was organized on Leninist communist principles. The KMT, many years later, uh, will flee into exile and become the ruling party of Taiwan. Uh, the KMT, I should note, they do not define themselves as being communist. Uh, they're not now. They're very socialists, but not communists. Uh, they define themselves in a lot of ways over the years. Uh, such as socialist with Marxist principles. It, it gets really complicated and frankly boring unless you're a political science historian. Uh, to oversimplify their beliefs greatly, uh, they despised free enterprise and thought the state should take care of its citizens. Uh, they did not like capitalism. To me, they both groups are communists. They just disagreed on some ph philosophical minutia. Uh, Mao was one of the first communists to also join the National Party and to work with them. Uh, during the first half of 1924, he lives mostly with his wife and two infant sons in Shanghai. He'll end up having a total of 10 kids. Uh, in Shanghai, they become a leading member of the Nationalist Executive Bureau. Uh, you know, he, he's into all kinds of communism. Any group that is, you know, very communist at this point, he's like, I, I want in. I like it. And so he's a member, essentially, of two communist parties. In the winter of 1924-1925, Mao returns to his native village of Shaoshan for arrest. There, after witnessing demonstrations by peasants Stirred into political consciousness by the shooting of several dozen Chinese by foreign police in Shanghai, Mao becomes aware of all the potential that lays within China's or China's peasant population. He realizes if he can rally the peasants who make up the majority of Chinese or of China's population by far, he can rule China. He imagines how powerful the peasants could be if they became organized and inspired. Although born in a peasant household, he had, during the course of his student years, adopted the Chinese intellectual's traditional view of the workers and peasants as being ignorant and dirty. Now he turns back to the rural world of his youth as the source of China's regeneration, the people that would lead it into the revolution in the new era. Following the example of other communists working within the Nationalist, Nationalist Party, Mao wants to channel the spontaneous protests of the Hunan peasants into a network of peasant communist associations. But this doesn't sit well with a lot of people. First and foremost, doesn't sit well with the military governor of Hunan, who definitely doesn't want the peasants organizing uh, for a revolution. Since, you know, that would mean they would be revolting against him. Makes sense. Hard to get behind a revolution that wants to take you down. Uh, Mao is forced to flee rather than risk being imprisoned or killed by uh, this governor. He goes to the city of Guangzhou, the main power base of the nationalists. There, he becomes the acting head of the propaganda department of the Nationalist Party, in which capacity he edits its leading organ, the Political Weekly. 
He also serves as as the uh, or he serves at the Peasant Movement Training Institute, which was an indoctrination center for communist ideals. In charge of propaganda, perfect training to become a dictator. Learn how to effectively manipulate the media, how to spin stories to inspire others to join your cause and serve you, and he would become a spin master. Uh, by May of 1916, the alliance between the CCP and the nationalists began to sour. Uh, Cheng Kai-shek had become the leader of the nationalists after the death of Sun Yat-sen in March of 1925, and he doesn't want there to be two communist parties anymore. He's the leader of the KMT, and he wants CCP members gone. Revolutionaries with you know different revolutionary ideals, even if they're just slightly different, they don't make for the best partners, right? If you're willing to sacrifice your life for a revolution, you're probably not going to be real big on compromise. Chang expels most CCP communists from responsible posts in the Nationalist Party in May of 1926. In November, Mao once more returns to Hunan. In January and February 1927, Mao can't stop thinking about the power of the peasantry. He concludes that in a very short time, several hundred million peasants in China will rise like a tornado or tempest, a force so extraordinarily swift and violent that no power, however great, will be able to suppress it. This won't exactly happen. It'll take a lot longer than he thought. Uh, but he's, you know, he's real pumped up about the power of the peasantry, but he can't sell KMT leader Chiang Kai-shek on this idea. Chiang was not into a uh, peasant revolution. He was into the cities. Uh, his focus and the KMT's focus going forward would be on, you know, urban, urban workers. And uh, in the rural area, it would be on the landowners, not the peasants. Uh, he also now really wants the CCP gone, not just out of his party, but out of the country. In April of, of 1927, he actually has some CCP Shanghai workers killed. Chiang Kai-shek turns violently against the communists. Uh, massacring hundreds of them. The CCP is driven underground now. This will inadvertently create the communist red army that will laser rise against Chiang. Many of the CCP Mao included now abandon their revolutionary activities among China's urban proletariat and they head to the countryside. They double down on aligning themselves with poor country folk. In the country, they plan and scheme regarding how to fight the nationalists who are currently much more powerful than they are and who are beating various warlords in battle and quickly unifying the country. And that's something, this episode was already too big. I'll just mention it real quick here. What the nationalists do for the next several years is after, you know, uh, imperial China collapses, in many parts of the former empire of China, warlords just are, are in control of little, you know, fiefdoms all over the place and making life, you know, real shitty for the peasants beneath them. And the nationalists go around and unify all these various areas of China. It takes them years and years and years Kicking this warlord's ass, kicking this warlord's ass. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, Mao would ultimately spend 22 years in the wilderness fighting against the nationalists. Not a fan of what this dude was going to create, but respect his dedication to the cause. China certainly was not handed to Mao. Uh, it took him decades to get it. For the first three years, Mao and uh, Zhu Da, the commander-in-chief of his army, successfully developed guerrilla warfare tactics from base areas in the countryside. In the summer of 1930, Mao and the Red Army attempt to occupy several major cities in south-central China. The CCP hopes their occupation of these cities will spark a workers' revo revolution, but it does not. Mao disobeys orders, abandons the battle to return to the rural base in southern uh, Yangshi. Also that year, Mao's wife is executed by the nationalists. They don't get him, but they do get her and they kill her. And he is pissed about it. And he is kind of sad, but not like that sad. He immediately remarries. But to he, Zhizhen, who he'd been living with since 1928. Yeah, you got to move on. Sometimes it takes years, sometimes it takes a couple days. November of 1931, the CCP declares the communist-occupied area of Yang, Yangshi, the Chinese Soviet Republic. Now they have their own little country in the middle of China with Mao as chairman. 
the, the border is constantly going to be in flux. They're always fighting for a little scrap of land out there. Well, he won't become the official undisputed leader until the long march a few years later. Really, he's the leader now, and he will remain in charge of the CCP until his death over 40 years later. Despite the name, this new nation was not a Soviet satellite country, but they were influenced and mentored by the Soviets. The Soviet-backed regime soon came to control a population of several million people. The Red Army now boasts somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 troops. And uh, they easily uh, defeat some larger forces of inferior KMT troops led by Chiang Kai-shek in the first of four campaigns between the armies. But then the KMT, they comes back at the CCP a fifth time and they finally win. They just had more troops, right? They could just keep coming and coming and coming. Uh, and they kill half of Mao's men in this fifth campaign. And then Mao and the remainder of his troops, now they have to flee and their escape will be called the Long March. Big deal in communist history. The Long March takes place in 1934 and 1935. The Chinese Communist Party, its Red Army, will make a trek to relocate their base 3,700 miles from southeastern Shanxi to northwestern Shanxi. And they'd have to walk most of that distance and keep fighting KMT forces along the way. Mao sets off with his pregnant wife in October of 1934. And in addition to being a long march, it's a real bloody march. By some estimates, 80,000 commies started the march and only about 10,000 finished it. Numbers vary pretty wildly from source to source. Uh, the gist remains the same, though. A lot of people started the march and somewhere less than 25% finish it. During this massive retreat, the CCP communists encountered dangerous terrain, perilous climate, starvation, disease, harassment from fucking warlords. It's always those fucking warlords out there. God, chaps my ass. I'm trying to get somewhere. And there's a fucking goddamn warlord. It's supposed to take us, you know, a couple hours to get to Missoula, but we ran into three warlords. There's a full day's trip. So glad we don't have to deal with warlords now, uh, here in this country at least. But uh, yeah, har you know, harassment from hostile tribes. There's frequent engagements with the Nationalist Army. The communist troops cross 18 mountain ranges, 20 rivers, to reach the northwestern province of Shanxi, losing 75 to 90% to 90 of the Red Army, by some estimates. Uh, seems like a pretty major defeat to me. But CCP propagandists would somehow spin all this into a victory. They portray all this not as a tale of getting their ass kicked month after month, but instead of refusing to surrender, persevering against all odds. They weren't losers. No, they were tenacious winners. They were courageous escapers who kept living to fight other days. And who is portrayed as the hero and brilliant military commander of this long march? The courageous leader who'd lost up to 90% of his troops and got his ass kicked basically the entire time? Mao Zedong, the real winner. Heavily exaggerated tales of his heroism and military brilliance are spun into a type of let's make China great again propaganda that inspires many young Chinese to join the CCP during the late 30s and early 1940s. Recruitment also goes well because they focus on, again, the peasants, not the urban workers. That's where the KMT really fucked up in the long run. In the long run, prior to World War II in China, there were just so many more farmers than there were shopkeepers and factory workers. And Mao knew that, and he focused on him. Recruitment between the KMT and the CCP was a war of numbers, and the numbers were working out in Mao's favor. 1936 begins the Yunnan period, though Mao himself wouldn't move to Yunnan, a city in the northern Shanxi province, until December of 1936. The Yunnan province, or period, excuse me, was characterized by two things, a renewed fight against the nationalists for power over China and Mao's unchallenged rise to true supremacy in the party. After the long march, the Yunnan period would begin uh, which was the crucible of the communist revolution in China. Uh, the Yunnan became the CCP's base, or uh, Yunnan, excuse me, became the CCP's base and headquarters from 1936 to 1948. A lot of things happened in the Yunnan period that are too complicated to get into now. Uh, the 1936 uh, Zhan incident, the Second Sino-Japanese War, the rectification movement, 
contact with foreign visitors, civil war with the nationalists. This period would end up being a formative period for the later ethos of the Cultural Revolution, with propaganda referring to the Yunnan spirit. Yunnan spirit was a combination of determination, commitment, and optimism for the communist cause. Right, a big uh, go big red. Uh, Mao's ideas from this period would later evolve into a broader political philosophy known as Mao Zedong thought. Uh, Mao argued that Marxist-Leninist theory must be adapted to suit Chinese conditions. He didn't want to repeat what had been done either in the Soviet Union or in liberalized Western countries. In uh, a book, uh, Problems of Strategy and Guerrilla War, published in 1938, Mao wrote, China's revolutionary war is waged in the specific environment of China, and so it has its own specific circumstances in nature. We must value more the experience of China's revolutionary war because there are many factors specific to the Chinese revolution and the Chinese Red Army. He also developed some new ideas about how China would be led. In his 1940 essay on new democracy, I love how often when uh, communist uh, you know, ideologists use words like democracy and democratic. <laughs> it's not at all. Mao outlines his plans for a dictatorship of the people. That's hilarious. That's not, not, that was not exactly a dictatorship. It's a dictatorship of the people. It's a totalitarian regime of the people. Uh, he called it democratic dictatorship. In this system, the people were involved in grassroots democratic processes, but the party maintained total control at the higher levels. Oh, nice, right? He's given recruits the illusion of having a real say in the party, but retaining the right to make all the important decisions. It's that kind of democracy. Similarly, uh, Mao's theory of the mass line, which argued that the party should listen attentively to the voice of the masses, sounded democratic in theory, but was authoritarian in practice. They just use all these like democratic words to be a totalitarian regime. It's just all a fucking game. There was never uh, any real power to the people ethos amongst the communists. It was always power to the party. And the par party was really Mao. Uh, settling in Yan'an, or yeah, Yan'an, Mao CCP members lived in small caves, a traditional dwelling in part of northern China. The Shanxi region was very poor, but survivors of the long march for, for them, life in the Yan'an caves was an improvement. Uh, living in such poor conditions bonded CCP officials and Red Army soldiers. It also improved the CCP's relationship to the peasants living in the area as Mao encouraged CCP party leaders and intellectuals to embrace living and working with the peasants. Also, uh, before moving on, they were not living in the caves the way you might think. This was written in a Chinese source. And it's written like they were just, you know, really roughing it, just like, like fucking resting their heads up against the stalactite. No, it's just like a modern dwelling built into a cave. It looks very nice. Uh, they lived in nice houses. <laughs> They happened to be built in some caverns. Uh, 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War begins. Known in China as the War of Chinese People's Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, this will be a catastrophic conflict for the Chinese people, causing up to 20 million casualties. It also has serious political repercussions for both the nationalists and the CCP. Full-scale war between China and Japan begins in July 1937 following an incident, following an incident near the Marco Polo Bridge near Beijing. The nationalists and the CCP forge a shaky alliance dubbed the Second United Front. They both realize their squabbles aren't going to fucking matter if Japan just kicks the shit out of both of them and takes their country away from them. The first phase of the war is a blitzkrieg of Japanese victories as their forces move swiftly along China's east coast. Japanese, man, no fucking joke at this point in history when it comes to fighting. In late 1907, uh, 1937, the nationalist government is forced to retreat from its capital, Nanjing, to, uh, Shang, to Chongqing in western China. Japanese occupiers would brutalize territory taken from the Chinese. The occupation of Nanjing that began in 1937 would become referred to by historians as the Rape of Nanjing. This shit is brutal. 
The rape of Nanjing could be its own suck subject. Maybe will be someday. Estimated that the Japanese massacred 300,000 people in and around this city, many of them civilians, in six weeks. That is ridiculous. According to contemporary accounts, thousands of civilians are, were buried alive, uh, machine gunned in mass, or many of them literally used for bayonet practice, for practice. Think about how desensitized you have to be to use an unarmed human being, many of them, women, children, the elderly, for bayonet practice. Uh, women and young girls taken and forced into labor as comfort women, sex slaves for Japanese officers and soldiers. This is some ancient Viking rape and pillage shit, except it's happening in uh, 1937. In June 1938, the nationalist KMT government orders the dikes of the Yellow River Dam to be blown, a desperate attempt to slow down the advance of the Japanese invasion. This is not good. This makes things a lot worse. Now, in addition to many peasants being killed or raped, sometimes used for bayonet practice, now many of the survivors, the farmers, can't water their crops because the dam is gone. This results in food shortages, famine, human suffering. Uh, you know, this contributes to a rising peasant hatred of the nationalist regime now. They're not protecting them, right? The imperialists didn't protect them earlier. Now the KMT, they can't protect them. By 1940, the Japanese controls uh, the entire northeastern coast, areas up to 400 miles inland in China. They install a puppet government in Nanjing under uh, Wang Jingwei, a former nationalist and one of Chiang's political rivals. Foreign assistance for the Chinese finally comes after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941. As the U.S. is drawn into World War II, China becomes an important area in the war against the Japanese. During this war with the Japanese, the CCP managed to consolidate their base in Yanan, or Yanan, while the Red Army, later reorganized as the 8th Route Army and the new 4th Army, defend inland areas of the Northwest. The 8th Route Army had only 30,000 men in 1937. By 1940, has 400,000. Mao, man, so good at recruiting and rebuilding. Really takes advantage. If World War II hadn't have happened, I don't know that he would have ever, you know, gotten into power. Would, would have ever been able to take control. Uh, you know, but it was just, it was a nice... Uh, way of getting other countries involved to help with Japan that allowed him to focus again fighting the nationalists and really kind of make some progress. Uh, in 1941, Mao initiates the rectification movement, which lasts for around three years. Beginning as a program for study and discussion of Mao's writings, rectification soon involves self-criticism or quote-unquote struggle sessions where comrades are expected to publicly announce their own failings. Cult, cult, cult. Right, he's, he's taking uh, advantage of the war going on to do a little, uh, you know, kind of um, polishing up of his of his party. Make sure everybody's real dedicated to him. With the help of Mao's chief of security, Kang Sheng, this odd form of group therapy turns into a sweeping purge of party members, many of whom are tortured, imprisoned, and executed. So fucked up. Members are encouraged to announce their own failings, which often will come out as criticisms of Mao and the party, and then they are killed for expressing those criticisms. This is not group therapy. This is just a, a way to get rid of those not loyal to Mao. The first of many of these type of purges, right? Weed out dissent. Show other party members what happens if you express dissent. All in all, around 10,000 people thought to have been killed on Mao's orders during this rectification period. 10,000 people who disagreed, people who replaced with those loyal to Mao and his ideas. Mao's cult of personality. Cult, cult, cult. Really begins to develop now. Late in the rectification movement, Mao is confronted by a backlash to his purges. Maybe, uh, you know, kill too many people and you risk an uprising. And he admits to excesses. Doesn't say, I'm sorry, but he's like, okay, I may have, I'm, I may have been a little excessive with my killing of people who disagreed with me. How nice of him. I'm sure the families of those he tortured and killed appreciated him, admitting that he was taking things too far. 
Uh, the CCP will later downplay the brutality of rectification and label it part of embracing the Yanan spirit. Sorry, everybody. We didn't mean any harm by killing dissidents. We were just so excited about communism. And it just kind of happened. Uh, by the end of the war, Mao's communists claimed to have fought 19,000 engagements of varying sizes, during which they inflicted a million casualties, dead, wounded, and captured, of which almost all of their 150,000 prisoners uh, were Chinese puppet soldiers collaborating with the Japanese. Are any of those numbers real? Hard to say. Almost impossible to separate fact from propaganda when talking about CCP victories. Because of the success of the communist fighting forces against the Japanese, or at least perceived success, popular support for the CCP does grow. The Second Sino-Japanese War comes to an end in August of 1945 after the U.S. drops atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right? World War II ends, the Sino-Japanese War ends. Following Japan's surrender, Taiwan is now returned to Chinese control. Now the stage is set in China for even more war. So much more, so much war in the suck. The decades-long civil war in China between the KMT nationalists and the CCP can now fully resume. Fun. The nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek receives U.S. support during this battle because the U.S. does not want communist control of China. Uh, the KMT, compared to right the CCP, is like communism light. It's also confusing. Like if Mao was like the Paps Blue Ribbon of communism, KMT would be like the Michelob Ultra, something like that. Uh, KMT also changes their principles a lot over the years, right? They were far left socialists, but also bigger fans of certain Western ideas and more pro-America, uh, less uh, swinging on Russia's nuts than the CCP. And that's why America backed them. They consider them to be the lesser of two evils. In 1945, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, leaders of the respective parties, meet for a series of talks on the formation of a post-war Chinese government. They decide after all this to arm wrestle for control. Uh, Mao has the idea first to turn his hat around and that's how he gets the power to win. No, there's no arm wrestling. I wish. Both agree on the importance of democracy. At least that's what they say. A unified military, equality for all Chinese political parties. Again, that's what they say. Neither one of these motherfuckers had any interest in democracy or equality. Uh, their truce is tenuous. By 1946, they're back to fighting. All out civil war. Uh, they've been fighting since 1927 now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. As the Civil War ramps up between 1947 to 1949, now they've been fighting for over 20 years, a victory for the CCP finally seems likely. Although the CCP does not hold any major cities, they uh, do hold the country. Uh, still, you know, they're controlling the peasants and China mostly populated by the peasants. The CCP also had by 1949 a better, more organized military, higher morale, larger stocks of weapons seized from Japanese supplies in Manchuria. Things are going well for the Red Army. In a report to the CCP's Central Committee in December 1947, an optimistic Mao observes the Chinese People's Revolutionary War has now reached a turning point. The main forces of the People's Liberation Army have carried the fight into the Kuomintang area. This is a turning point in history. By early 1948, the KMT nationalist military position is not good. They're retreating. The Red Army steadily is pushing them out of Manchuria, out of northern China. CCP held territory increases from about one-tenth of China in early 1946 to one-third in late 1948, an area of some one million square miles, containing more than 200 million people. They now get complete control of Manchuria, about half of Inner Mongolia, large portions of seven other provinces. On September 1st, 1948, the communists proclaim the North China People's Government. This is a forerunner to a People's Republic that will encompass all of China. The KMT, still alive, but barely. They keep losing more and more territory, more troops, more popular support. The nationalists have been financing much of their recent war efforts by simply printing more money and had in the process destroyed the purchasing power of their currency, the yuan. 
some 9 million yuan uh, in circulation in late 1946. Then by August 1948, that number increased to 700 trillion. Holy shit. Just tossing around monopoly money. What a weird thing nations can do, sometimes try to do when they're broke and need more money. Just print a whole bunch more, right? Just shit, run out of money. Oh God, uh, are we out of paper? Uh, no, I think we still have more paper. Oh good. Uh, do we have ink? Yeah, yeah. No, I think we still have some ink. Then, well, then we've got more money. Just fire up the press. Just make a whole bunch more money. I could dive into the complexities of inflation and currency devaluation here, but this suck already has plenty of info crammed into it. Let's move on. Uh, professionals and middle-class workers in the nationalist heartland see their savings wiped out because their money is not worth fucking anything anymore. What a terrifying possibility. And it seems to them like the KMT nationalist government doesn't care and isn't helping and that it's their fault. Not good for morale. Not at all. Strikes, student demonstrations, labor unrest becomes commonplace. Black market traffic dramatically increases. KMT-controlled areas of China are devolving into anarchy. They're on their last legs. The two decades-plus-long struggle for China between the nationalists and the CCP, the communists, ends in 1949. Throughout 1949, peace talks between the nationalists and communists take place as the Red Army steadily gains more control of the country. Then on October 1st, 1949, Mao Zedong addresses the crowd in Tiananmen Square establishes the People's Republic of China, governing a population of around 540 million people. He did it. He finally did it. He unified the nation into one gigantic communist state. I I would applaud him if he wasn't such a piece of shit. Within days, the Soviet Union and the communist bloc recognized the PRC as legitimate. Of course they do. Stalin, Stalin's loving this. More red spread, a new strong ally in oppressing the poor workers you've sold on liberation. Two months later, two million soldiers followed Chiang Kai-shek into exile in Taiwan where he sets up a provisional government that claims to be the legitimate ruling body of not only Taiwan, but all of China. But they're not. They lost. In Taiwan, the KMT would set up a democratic Republican system of government in theory. They're, they're very much a, they were very much a fake republic for so long. They would declare martial law after setting up a democracy and maintain martial law for 38 straight years. Those pieces of shit. They used this as a way to suppress dissident thought. This period was known as the White Terror, and 140,000 were unjustly imprisoned and or executed for expressing pro-CCP leanings. They're still mad about losing China. Most of the people were the island's intellectuals. So under the guise of being anti-communist, these motherfuckers are doing the exact same thing. Now Taiwan is more of a true democratic republic, kind of. Uh, they they uh, they still uh, control themselves. Kind of. it's, it's confusing. Taiwan is confusing. They think they have one government. They kind of do. China thinks they control them. They kind of do. They really do. Uh, Back to 1949, Mao Zedong, the longtime head of the CCP is leading China and he heads to Russia to celebrate and he's not welcomed like he was hoped, hoping for. Uh, When Mao makes his first visit to Moscow after winning control of China after taking two decades to get it, he expects to be treated with special favor. He expects a fucking parade, the red carpet. Nope, he's just one guest among many who would come to celebrate Stalin's 70th birthday. He gets a very brief meeting with the Soviet leader and then he has to spend the next couple weeks pouting in some little shitty shack where his sole recreational facility is a broken tennis table. (laughs) Broken table tennis table. Uh, Poor baby. Also, weirdly enough, according to a former Soviet agent, Stalin requests that Chairman Mao's feces, his shit, be sent for analysis to a secret laboratory. Finally, a good weird detail for me to grab onto. The leader of the Soviet Union wants to see what chemicals and compounds are present in the chairman's feces. (laughs) To, quote, develop a better psychological profile on him. God. How did that happen exactly as it's written in the source? How weird. Stalin checking in with some scientist about mouse poop, right? Going over a poop report to see what kind of psychological profile he has. So tell me, what do we think about this Mao guy? What does poop tell us? 
Is he a liar or does he tell truth? What does Poop say? Do he like pasta? What kind of car he like drive? Who he favorite author? Do he like to watch I Love Lucy or no? What do Poop say? Do he want to overthrow Marshall Russia or play nice? What do you mean you not know? Do you study Poop or not? Did he like Lenin more than me or no? You don't know what I pay you to study Poop for. You not give answers I want. Dimitri, take Poop Doctor to Gulag and torture. If you want to know how to get out of Gulag and not die, give him some of my poop. He can find answer in my poop if he look hard enough. <laughs> so fucking absurd. These people are so crazy. Uh, while relations uh, with Soviet Union, the Soviet Union start off kind of, uh, you know, shitty. You get it. Uh, they will soon blossom. On February 14th, 1950, China and the Soviet Union signed the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance and Mutual Assistance. Commies. Friends. Unified in peasant and intellectual oppression. Uh, the two nations work together to keep peace in the East and to not let those fuckers in Japan ever kick China's ass again. And they link their economies. And then the new Chinese government under Mao would get busy. In June 1950, the CCP starts with the Chinese land reform movement. Land belonging to landlords and wealthy farmers is rapidly, quote, re redistributed to millions of peasants, sort of. Uh, the land is stolen from the people who owned it. And is put under collective ownership, which results in the creation of agricultural productive cooperatives. <laughs> so the land was less redistributed and more just taken uh, and not given to the peasants, but instead owned by the state. Uh, were the previous owners of this land happy about this redistribution? No, they were not. They were definitely not. And many of them very quickly would find themselves dead. Estimates of their deaths range from hundreds of thousands to millions. Mao Zedong himself estimates are estimated as many as two to three million landowners were killed targeted specifically on the basis of their social class. Power to the people. Viva la revolution. Uh, the CCP would later report that 15% of China's 50 million landlords and wealthier peasants were executed. And another 25% sent to labor camps to be re-educated. Also in 1950, the marriage law in China is put into effect, providing people with the freedom to marry and divorce uh, freely, which was new and is good. Got to hand it to Mao here. Previously, many marriages arranged uh, and peasant women often essentially sold to landowners. Now people get to marry based on love, which leads to a lot more fucking. Not kidding. And this combined with more modern medicine and a better initial distribution of resources under Mao leads to a lot more kids, which is what led to China's massive population. Uh, Mao preached in the 50s and 60s that the Chinese needed to be fruitful and multiply, and they listened to him and did. And now China has the world's largest population. Uh, by 1952, Mao's land reforms are completed after a five-year campaign. All land deeds are destroyed. The government, uh, I mean the people, own everything. And around 2 million landlords have been executed. Fun. 1953, China inaugurates its first five-year plan modeling Stalin's Soviet model of industrial development. While Mao had previously concentrated his energy on China's peasant population, he's now focusing on developing China into a modern industrial power. Propaganda told China's citizens that rapid industrialization was the only way to guarantee true economic independence that would allow China to fight imperialism. And not totally wrong, right? Had they not industrialized, they would have been, you know, uh, conquered much more easily. Well, I mean, they weren't conquered, but, you know, they could have been conquered. Uh, the, this plan sets ambitious goals for industries and areas of production deemed priorities by Mao, like uh, steel, coal, and petrochemicals. And you had to go along with this plan. Yay, one-party system who controls everything. Anything short of total acceptance of this plan was deemed counter-revolutionary. And if you were deemed a counter-revolutionary, well, you know, you, you were dead. The USSR gave China advice, logistics, even material support to help this plan move along. Several thousand Soviet engineers, scientists, technicians, and planners traveled to China. 
The first five-year plan would achieve its stated goals, increasing heavy industry and stimulating the economy, but it came at a price. Like in the Soviet Union, industrial development came at the expense of agriculture. Grain output struggled to keep pace with population growth, jeopardizing food supplies. However, Chinese cities did flourish under this five-year plan. Urban populations increased from 57 million to 100 million, uh, and life expectancy did rise from 36 to 57 years. Urban incomes increased by 40%. Life early on with Mao did for sure improve for some, for many. Uh, workplaces were organized on socialist principles. Urban and industrial workers subsidized housing, medical care, educational facilities. Life for urban Chinese was tightly regimented by way of Don Wei, though, or work units. The Don Wei provided the basic structure for labor and controlled many aspects of everyday life including accommodation, education, and social services. Uh, soon, people even had to consult their Don Wei about marriage, about having kids, or about taking vacations. All right, so as life improves initially for some, uh, freedoms start to slip away, and the state expands its influence over citizens. In 1954 and 1955, the PRC writes its constitution, steps up the collectivation of agriculture. By 1956, economic reforms increased centralized state control in urban areas. Private ownership has now become virtually impossible anywhere in China. Approximately two-thirds of industrial enterprises are now state-owned, the remainder jointly owned between, uh, you know, citizens and the state. Fun. Also, rigid central planning and national demands result in local needs being neglected, especially in the countryside. 84% of the population lived in rural areas, but 88% of the government's money is now going towards industrialization in cities. The same peasants Mao had sworn the CCP would protect. The peasants who had put Mao in power, now they're getting fucked again. This time by the, you know, the communists instead of uh, their landlords. Agricultural output plummets. Cities keep getting bigger. This is not a good recipe. Some people start to worry about the struggling countryside's ability to feed rapidly expanding cities. And Mao was like, shut the fuck up. Things are fine. Everything is fine. China's now facing regional food shortages and occasional famines. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. Just a few people starving. Off to the side a little bit. Chinese government could have embraced new technologies and farming techniques, but they were being used, uh, that were being used successfully elsewhere in Asia, but they choose not to. That wasn't part of the five-year plan. If it, you know, if Mao didn't think of it, it wasn't a good idea. So, uh, Stalin's dead. Did I mention that? Yeah, he's totally dead now. He died a few years ago, uh, so he's super dead. Uh, 1957, Nikita Khrushchev is running shit in Russia now. And in 1957, in the wake of Khrushchev's Denunciation of Stalin and political explosions in Poland and Hungary, Mao calls for a hundred flowers movement to improve the relationship between the CCP and the Chinese people. He doesn't want the Chinese people to turn on him for being a ruthless tyrant like the Russian people turned on Stalin after he died. Leading Chinese intellectuals are invited to share their criticism of Mao's reforms. Can Marxism be criticized, Mao would ask. Certainly it can. Marxism is scientific truth and fears no criticism. If it did, and if it could be overthrown by criticism, it would be worthless. That's what he says. The metaphor of the hundred flowers is intended to signify a hundred schools of thought debating. If you're thinking, I don't, I don't think this is going to end well. Ding, ding, ding. You are right. The campaign is publicly launched on February 27th, 1957 in a rambling speech on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. In this speech, Mao praises the unity of China and the new regime's achievements. And then the criticism Mao asks for comes. And it is not good. It is widespread and vitriolic. Giant posters appear across the country criticizing CCP officials, including Mao. Students and lecturers openly denounce the, denounce the party. They attack the very legitimacy of the CCP's rule in China. Millions of letters pour into government offices, venting criticism about everything from the lateness of public transport to Mao's personal conduct 
Eek. As in uh, the May 4th movement of 1919, some of the strongest criticism comes from China's university students in Beijing. And Mao, not surprisingly, not real happy about all this. And now he knows who his critics are. They've just outed themselves. So many had just outed themselves. A June 1957 editorial makes an edit to the 100 Flowers campaign under the guise of simply republishing Mao's original speech. Uh, but this time, the speech has been edited to say that not all contradictions will be tolerated. <laughs> Anyone paying attention is uh, fucking nervous now. Uh, he just pulled a real scary JK. Then a year after the 100 Flowers campaign begins, Mao brings it to an end. Mao's new line of thinking will go something like this. What should our policy be towards non-Marxist ideas? As far as unmistakable counter-revolutionaries and saboteurs of the socialist cause are concerned, the matter is easy. We simply deprive them of their freedom of speech, he says. Oh, shit. Anyone paying attention now is shifting from being nervous to fucking scared. Guessing some pants are getting pooped in. A purge of political opposition will follow. A campaign called the Anti-Rightist Campaign purges intellectuals and others, those who would voice the very criticism Mao had literally asked for. What a piece of shit. Some think he never cared about uh, any genuine feedback. The whole thing was a ruse to, to just out dissenters. Mao himself would later claim this was a trick, saying he'd entice the snakes out of their caves. Between 300,000 and 550,000 individuals identified as rightists, most of them intellectuals, academics, writers, and artists, are publicly discredited, lose their jobs, some are forced into labor camps, and some, of course, are killed. Uh, in December of 1957, Mao announces his new plan. He calls it the Great Leap Forward, and it will be the shittiest plan yet. It's essentially a second five-year plan designed to improve the economic prosperity for the PRC. There's two objectives. The first, to speed up China's creation of an industrialized economy, catch up with the West. The second, to further transform China into a collectivized society where, according to Mao's version of Marxist theory, people's work, production, and personal lives will be completely informed, i.e. controlled, by the government. Cooperatives and collectivization has, be, uh, has been encouraged during the mid-1950s, but it wouldn't be until the Great Leap Forward that the people's communes truly became the government's official policy. Private property has finally been completely abolished. And in some places, so is currency. You don't need money. The state will provide everything. Some of this had been going on uh, prior to 1957. It just wasn't being prioritized. Peasant families organized into cooperatives of 100 to 300 households. According to a CCP propaganda jingle from the late 1950s, communism is a paradise and people's communes are the way to get there. I don't know the, I don't know the, uh, the rhythm. Uh, cult, 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 get to the compound. On these collective farms, production, resource allocation, food distribution, entirely controlled by the communists. Land plots, farm buildings, tools, livestock relinquished to the government. The leadership of people's communes becomes fanatical about Im implementing governmental policy, increasing production, meeting targets, outdoing other communes. They demand a regimented, practically militarized lifestyle to conform with these expectations, expectations that often exceed what is possible. Officially, everyone's supposed to get at least six hours sleep every two days. How fucked up is that? Come on. We're, we're nice. We're going to be cool. We're going to give you six hours sleep every other day. Uh, some brigades, though, now boast of working up to four or five days straight without stopping. Yay, communism! The state will take care of you. It'll give you everything you need. And what you need is to fucking work, you piece of shit! Sleep? What are you, some kind of capitalistic crybaby? Uh, other features of communal living include collective childcare, nursing homes, communal kitchens. Cooking at home is banned now, as the communal dining hall will allow the government to control all aspects of food distribution and consumption. You want to eat at home with your family? Nope. You don't have a home anymore. Fuck your family. We're your family, you capitalistic pig. Sleep in the sleep hall. Eat in the food hall. 
Fucking the fuck all. Be a good red dog. Food allocations intend to last for a week, sometimes disappear in a day. People don't know where they're going to get their meal next. By late 1958, the entire Chinese countryside has been divided, organized into thousands and thousands of communes. Mao wants to maximize production of both grain and steel, farms and mines. Thanks for putting me in charge, peasants. Now back to work. China tosses out a fun national slogan to make people feel good about all this. Dare to think, dare to act. Except don't think, just act. Just let us do the thinking and you act like you're fucking enjoying this. Uh, This time, uh, the CCP will initiate some new farming technology, sort of. Large-scale irrigation projects with little input from actual trained engineers begin. Experimental, oftentimes unproven new agricultural techniques are quickly introduced around the country, and they don't work. The result is declining crop yields from failed experiments. Uh, Check out, (laughs) this is the dumbest one. Check out this awesome plan they enacted. I can't believe this is real. I swear to God, this is real. The four pest plan. (laughs) This is my favorite part of this. Mao launched a nationwide campaign to exterminate all mosquitoes, that's pest one, house flies, that's pest two, rodents, that's pest three, and then pest four, sparrows. Seriously, as in birds. Those little birds, he wanted all of them dead. (laughs) He didn't do too well when it came to mosquitoes and house flies because, you know, they're, they're fucking hard to get rid of. Same for rats. But he did pretty well with the sparrows, too well. He believed the sparrows were a major pest when it came to grain crops. He declared, and I am being serious, quote, birds are public animals of capitalism. He's insane. That's such a fucking stupid statement. I don't even know where to begin picking it apart. Millions and millions of Chinese get to sparrow hunting. Sparrow nests are destroyed. Eggs are broken. Chicks are killed. (laughs) Millions of people are organizing into groups and they're just walking around hitting noisy pots and pans over and over to prevent the sparrows from being able to rest in their nests with the goal of causing them to drop dead from exhaustion. And this insane plan actually works. So much what the fuck here. Soldiers and citizens are shooting birds down from the sky. They're hitting it with rocks, sticks, whatever. And they kill almost all of the sparrows in all of China. And then realize, oh shit, sparrows eat locusts. And locusts do way more damage to crops than sparrows. Fuck. Cue massive locust swarms that then eat the shit out of the crops all over China. Mao tries... <laughs> <laughs> Mal then tries to swap out the fourth pest. He's like, did I say sparrows? I was kidding around. I meant bedbugs. Come on, give her the bedbugs. He really did try to swap this out, but it's too late. Grain production falls so sharply. Hundreds of thousands soon die from forced labor trying to protect the remaining crops. Famine quickly sets in, resulting in millions of deaths. Millions of people starve because this dumb fuck thought it would be a great idea to kill the goddamn birds. Birds, he said, were public animals of capitalism. It's so stupid. This is literally one of the dumbest historical tragedies I've ever read about. <laughs> People, oh my God, they resort now to eating tree bark and dirt to try and stay alive. It's hell on earth. In some areas, they resort to cannibalism. I watched a documentary where survivors told tales about stuff like a little boy eating his brother to survive. Mao, of course, denies the situation's the party's fault. As more people starve, Mao's regime desperately tries to stop the bleeding, makes things worse. Farmers who fail to meet irrational grain quotas now. Farmers who uh, eat more than the government allots them to eat to try not to starve. Farmers who try to get more food, who try to flee China because it's a fucking dumpster fire right now, get tortured and killed, as well as their families. Mao's thugs want to send a strong message. All right, I listen to crazy tales of kids just being tossed off cliffs, kids being shot, all kinds of horrible stuff, all because they were starving. They got caught eating food they weren't supposed to be eating or because their parents had broken some dumb rule. People are publicly mutilated, buried alive, scalded with boiling, boiling water, etc. The more people uh, that die, the more Mao's government tries to keep increasing production demands. In 1957, the annual steel production target is 5.35 million tons. 
And then in May of 1958, he's like, nah, 10.7 million tons. His demands are not based in reality. They're based in just what he wanted. And then people die when they, of course, they can't meet his insane demands. This is how crazy he is. Like, say you're married and say your wife, husband, partner, whatever, makes $50,000 a year. Uh, They've never made more than that before in their entire life. And then on New Year's Eve, you tell them, hey, this next year, I need you to make at least $100,000 or I'm gonna fucking kill you. And then when they don't make that money, you actually do kill them. That's what Mao was doing, but to a nation. Mao wanted China's steel production to match the USSR's by 1960, then to overtake Britain's steel production shortly thereafter. And he was willing to kill millions to try and do this. Large-scale projects to increase industrial production are introduced to cities. Backyard steel furnaces are built on farms and in urban neighborhoods. They don't work. The backyard steel industry produces largely useless, low-quality pig iron. Existing metal equipment, tools, household goods are confiscated, melted to fuel additional production. Still doesn't work. They come nowhere near their goals because their goals are stupid. Their goals were set by a lunatic who had them kill all the sparrows. Due to the failures in planning and coordination, the resulting material shortages, the massive increase in industrial investment and reallocation of resources results in, uh, you know, um, no corresponding increase in manufacturing output. Also, all the people who had moved to cities to work in industrial development put an additional strain on food distribution and, and the collective farms, which leads to more starvation. The Great Leap Forward is a massive fuck up. Uh, it, it becomes mostly known for the Great Chinese Famine. Tens of millions die in just a few years. Estimates of the total loss of life that can be attributed to these policies range from 15 to 55 million deaths. Mao's policies lead directly to the worst famine in human history. Uh, Farmland damaged by terrible agricultural practices. Densely wooded areas are now completely barren. The trees haven't been cut down to fuel inefficient steel furnaces. People's homes have been torn torn down during these years. Their material uh, used for steel mills or for communal compound construction. By 1961, when the second plan was over, uh, 30 to 40% of China's homes have been demolished. Things got so bad that many high-ranking CCP members are now telling Mao they need, that he needs to make some changes. And he doesn't like that. So he kills him. Defense Minister uh, Peng uh, Dehuai is purged in August of 1959. So are many allies of his in the party. During, during the summer of 1959, Mao makes it known that any person that shared a similar view to Peng uh, Dehuai and his followers will meet the same fate. Mao starts to get really paranoid by the early 60s. He knows he's fucked up. People are talking about him. So he starts killing more and more people. More and more people getting purged, suspected of being dissidents. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> finally, Mao decides to uh, reverse some of his policies. He starts to allow people to uh, keep a private plot of land again so they can grow their own food. He gives peasants uh, eight hours off a day. They only have to work 16 hours a day now. What, what a peach. Now let's back up a few years. Check in with Mother Russia. 1958, Soviet leader Khrushchev makes a visit to China. This visit will bring back bad memories for Mao of how he'd been treated by Stalin when Mao visited the USSR. He's still pissed about being insulted. So he decides to insult Khrushchev, such a smart, noble leader. Mao puts Nikita Khrushchev in a room with no air conditioning during a humid Beijing summer. Then, when talks begin the next morning, Mao flatly refuses to agree to a Soviet proposal for joint defense initiatives, at one point leaping up and waving a finger in Khrushchev's face. He chain smokes, knowing Khrushchev hates smoking, He treats his Soviet counterpart, the leader of a more powerful nation, by far at this time, according to one biographer, like a particularly dense student. He's the best. He's the leader for China to be proud of. Uh, After all this, Mao suggests that the meeting between him and Nikita move to his private residence inside the Communist Party's inner sanctum, this luxury compound. Mao shows up to this meeting dressed in a bathrobe and slippers, then has an aide produce a pair of green bathing trunks for Khrushchev. 
Mao insists that his guests join him in the pool, knowing that Khrushchev can't swim. Mao has an aide bring him some little water wings meant for a child, not insulting or disrespectful at all. <laughs> Khrushchev puts on these little water wings. After, after considerable uh, exertion, the Soviet leader is able to kind of get moving, quote, paddling like a dog in a desperate attempt to swim with Mao. A Russian aide present will later say it was an unforgettable picture. The appearance of two well-fed leaders in, a swimming, tr- in swimming trunks discussing questions of great policy under splashes of water. <laughs> this meeting may have had something to do with the deterioration of the relationship between China and the USSR that'll follow. On Khrushchev's next visit to Beijing in 1959, he's insulted further. There's no honor guard to greet him as was customary, no welcoming speech. He doesn't even get a microphone for his own speech. They don't give him a mic. Uh, things devolve into a shouting match. He goes home pissed. In July of 1960, Nikita Khrushchev removes Soviet advisors from China By 1966, the two sides uh, are fighting a barely contained border war. They're no longer allies. Mao has now not only created the worst famine in the history of the world, he's also cost China its most important and most powerful ally by far. In December of 1960, the government orders an official investigation into the results of the Great Leap Forward. Far from surpassing the West in terms of productivity, China was now importing large amounts of food from the West to feed villagers. Uh, when they look into this, uh, you know, greatly before and they try and find out, you know, whose fault it was, they decide it was just a, it was a natural disaster. Nothing could be done. Now let's talk for a second about how gross Mao was. In addition to doing really stupid shit like mass murdering sparrows, in addition to uh, doing really evil shit, like tricking people into speaking out against him and then ruining their lives and or killing them, he had some very nasty hygiene habits. Didn't brush his teeth. Uh, it's one of those weird quirks. He didn't brush his teeth. Instead, he rinsed his mouth with tea and chewed leaves, which is not the same if you know anything about oral health care. This left the chairman supposedly with green rotting teeth and gums that were often infected and sometimes allegedly even oozed pus. <laughs> He's their leader. When encouraged by a physician to brush, Chairman Mao would respond, does a tiger brush his teeth? Uh, okay, okay. I mean, that's true. But, uh, they also don't live as long. Mao, don't eat the same kind of foods. Mao also considered bathing to be a waste of time, quote. He would swim and receive rubdowns with hot, <laughs> with hot towels instead. Is this guy related to last week's dirty serial killer? Is he a Picton? Is Zedong Chinese for Picton? Uh, Mao also suffered from severe constipation throughout his life, and he apparently made his wife <laughs> help him get the poop out by reaching into his butthole with her fingers and tickling out those turds. Not kidding. Eventually, she learned how to perform enemas and began administering enemas to him. What a, what a great, noble, magnanimous leader. Someone to be proud of. On January 5th, 1964, this fucking weirdo has a book published. This obvious genius decides that all of China's citizens should bathe in the continual glory of his wisdom. That, if they must read, they should read his undeniably wise and timeless thoughts. Mao's ideas are illustrated very clearly in a book titled Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. Straightforward title. The book is more commonly known as Mao's Little Red Book because the most popular versions were printed in small sizes that could be easily carried and were bound in bright red covers. It was basically Mao's versions of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he would have more than a billion copies printed. <laughs> Seriously. And, and given out, making it the most widely published, you know, one of the most widely published books of all time. Not, not because it was so popular, you know, some people wanted to buy it because he insisted that people have it. The initial publication covered 23 topics with 200 selected quotations by the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. During China's coming cultural revolution, it will become virtually mandatory to own and carry one. The Little Red Book in its later version will contain 267 statements from Mao covering subjects like class struggle, correcting mistaken ideas, the mass line, Mao's term for the process of consulting the masses, interpreting their suggestions within the framework of Marxism and then enforcing the resulting policies. 
including the book is uh, Mao's famous remark that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Okay. Mao's Ministry of Culture aims to distribute a copy to every Chinese citizen. Uh, printing houses are built all over uh, China to do this. Mao himself reportedly felt his ideas in the book were on par with or superior to the ideas of Confucius. And of course, it was off limits to criticize this book in any way. Here's a notable quote about communism. We communists are like seeds and the people are like the soil. Wherever we go, we must unite with the people, take root and blossom among them. Okay. He also wrote about criticism saying, this democratic method of resolving contradictions among the people was epitomized in 1942 in the formula unity, criticism, unity. To elaborate, it means starting from the desire for unity, resolving contradictions through criticism or struggle and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. In our experience, this is the correct method of resolving contradictions among the people. Uh-huh. Uh, that is not exactly how Mao and the party handled criticism, as you know. A more accurate quote would be, the communist way to resolve contradictions is for me to tell everyone what is right and see who agrees and then kill any motherfucker who does it. That is Chairman Mao's way. Uh, there is that way and then there is death. October 1964, the PRC detonates its first nuke. That's fun. Glad this guy has nukes. Can't brush his teeth, but he has nukes. Uh, between 1966 and 1976, some historians say the real thrust was between 1966 and 1969. Mao leads the great proletarian cultural revolution. And you can bet your sweet ass this is going to be wonderful. Things are going to work out really well for a whole bunch of people. Mao is frustrated by the CCP's bureaucracy and the lack of revolutionary commitment he perceives in the party. At least that's what he said in regards to why he launched this new proclaimed revolution. In reality, it was just another purge. The, the cultural revolution centered around the destruction of the four olds. Old ideas, old culture, old customs, old habits. Kind of vague. Easier to bend it around, you know, come up with more excuses to kill people. Uh, another slogan would be used to illustrate the will of the party. Smash the four olds and people would get smashed. Mostly a lot of old people. The slogan encouraged young activists to destroy anything the state regarded as old. <laughs> this is insane again. In Western minds, many would later remember seeing images of the media in the media of young Chinese activists destroying temples, uh, practicing religion, what kind of tolerated before, now completely condemned. As the movement escalates, many older people, as well as intellectuals and artists who would somehow manage to survive the beginning of Mao's reign are physically abused and or murdered. Mao encourages these attacks. He wants to reassert his authority after the Great Leap Forward blunder. Communes and the Great Leap had not gone far enough, he now writes. They were too weak when it came to suppressing counter-revolutionaries. The new revolutionary organization are committees consisting of four or former party cadres, young activists, and representatives of the People's Liberation Army. They would remain in place until two years after Mao's death. And at first, they were largely controlled by the army. Millions of young people, known as the infamous Red Guards, are mo mobilized in this way to carry out havoc. They are Mao's shock troops, and they go fucking nuts. The Red Guard persecuted, tortured, and killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Chinese who were deemed class enemies. Uh, <laughs> just being old could make you a class enemy. E estimates of the death toll in the Cultural Revolution, including civilians and Red Guards, vary greatly, ranging from hundreds of thousands to 20 million. Mao centered the early phases of the revolution on China's schools. In the summer of 1966, the Communist Party leadership proclaimed that some of China's educators were members of the exploiting class and they were poisoning students with their capitalist bullshit ideology. This the leadership gave the Red Guards uh, the green light, carte blanche, to do what the fuck they ever, whatever they wanted, these educators. Punish them however they saw fit. Many of these uh, people are forced into cow sheds. They called them makeshift detention centers where they were forced to perform manual labor, recite Maoist tracts. They were regularly beaten, often killed. 
After a few months in the cow shed, I could feel my emotions being dulled and my thoughts growing more stupid by the day, writes a Peking University professor, uh, Zhi Jinjian, in his memoir, The Cow Shed. He, he, his experiences during the time were a dizzying descent into hell, he wrote, and they were not uncommon. Ji and other sometimes very elderly professors and teachers were beaten, spit upon, tortured uh, at rallies and criticism sessions that would last for hours. One former elite Red Guard leader, uh, Zhen Ziolu, said on August 19th, I organized a meeting to criticize the leaders of the Beijing education system. A rather serious armed struggle broke out. At the end, some students rushed on stage and used leather whips, or no, I'm sorry, leather belts to whip some of the education officials, including the party secretary of my school. Chen says uh, the situation spiraled out of control. The school's party secretary, the school's party secretary, later committed suicide, and a vice secretary was permanently crippled as a result of these beatings. The same summer, Chairman Mao meets with crowds of frenzied Red Guards in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. He endorses their violent tactics, including manual beatings and beatings with clubs, other blunt instruments. In August and September 1966, a total of uh, over 1,700 people are beat to death in Beijing alone. This is a shocking change in Chinese society where according to Confucian principles, teachers and elders were once held in high, you know, highest, the highest esteem. Along with the horrors inflicted by the Red Guard, a host of CCP party veterans are also purged. So much purging. The campaign finally ends in 1976. In addition to all the unnecessary death, 10 years of turmoil, with schools and universities essentially frozen from engaging in any kind of intellectual development, uh, China is greatly set back as a nation. Their agriculture and industry uh, is, is stagnant. While this is going on, Mao finds time to kick out some fun propaganda. In 1966, when he's 73, it's reported that he plunged into the Yangtze River and swam 15 kilometers, or 9.3 miles, in 65 minutes, according to the Chinese central government. That would mean that Chairman Mao swam a mile in under eight minutes, when at that time, the world record was uh, uh, for a mile swimming was 20 minutes. <laughs> so pretty sweet. Too bad this guy couldn't have found time to compete in the Olympics. This, this obvious greatest athlete in history could have won all the gold medals. Every Olympics. In October of 1971, the People's Republic of China replaces the Republic of China, uh, the ousted nationalist government based in Taiwan in the UN Security Council. This is a big international endorsement. It means that to the international community, communist China is finally legit. They had not been seen as legit previous to this. February of 1972, US President Richard Nixon takes a trip to China. US-China relations have been virtually non-existent since Mao took charge. This is big. Marks the signing of the Shanghai Communique in which the U.S. acknowledges the one-China policy, which means that the Taiwan government is not a separate Chinese government, but falls under the PRC. The meeting with Nixon was one of Mao's last great public successes. Nearing 80 years of age, Mao begins to make less frequent appearances after this. He retires from world record swimming, focuses on chewing tea leaves and getting his butthole cleaned out with enemas. Uh, he's also uh, suffering the debilitating effects of Parkinson's disease. 1973, Chairman Mao offers to send 10 million women to the U.S., one of the last weird things he does. Publicly, the chairman uh, uh, believed his country was too poor to sustain and they had an excessive number of women. <laughs> and the U.S. is like, uh, thank you, but that's that's weird. Uh, that's, that's real weird. We're, we're good. On September 9th, 1976, Mao Zong dies. Mao Zedong dies after several heart attacks. When he died, Chairman Mao's body was embalmed, put on a display inside of a crystal coffin. You can go see it. If you can, you know, get yourself on the visitor list at the mausoleum of Mao Zedong in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. So that's fun. Uh, by the end of his reign, Mao would oversee the slaughter and starvation of somewhere between 30 and 55 million people. He was a great leader, one of the best to ever play the game. Mao's sudden death creates a power struggle. His designated successor, uh, Hua Gufeng, took over all the formal roles of leadership and faced opposition from Mao's wife, uh, Zhang Qing, 
and three of her allies. They would become known as the Gang of Four. Uh, Wagu Fung would popularize the slogan, Smash the Gang of Four. Uh, they like to put the smash in titles. The Gang of Four were associated with the excesses of the Cultural Revolution and were quickly arrested and in true CCP style are purged. The purgers become the purged. Only one can sit on the Iron Throne. In the Game of Thrones, there is one winner and death to the rest. Uh, the Cultural Revolution is brought to a swift end. Propaganda posters at the time portray Jiang Qing and her allies as traitors. Jiang Qing and her three allies eventually go on trial. And uh, the courtroom drama plays out on public TV, shows fiery exchanges between prosecutors and Jing Chang, who remains defiant even as her former allies denounce her. All are given life sentences. And then Jing Chang, or Jiang Qing, I'm sorry, commits suicide in 1991. Uh, Wa, already premier, now becomes chairman of the CCP, chairman of its Military Affairs Commission, thus officially succeeds Mao. The reforms of Mao's shit policies now begin. 1977, Wa Gufeng initiates a new era of policy for China, starting with the open door policy, meaning open trade with the world. More open economic policies follow, a joint venture law, a law governing patents. New laws attract foreign capital. Um, you know, an experiment with special economic zones along the southern coast in the late 70s leads in 1984 to a decision to open 14 cities to more intense engagement with the international economy. Larger and larger sections of China open to foreign trade over the next decades. These zones become the engines driving China's enormous economic growth and the cities associated with them mushroom in size. Shenzhen, or Shenzhen, for example, grows from a town of only 30,000 in 1979 to 7,500,000 in about uh, 30 years. Food shortages, food shortages will vanish as foreign investment increases. Reform and opening up was the newest government slogan and policy revives agriculture. Peasants allowed far greater choices in what crops to plant. Many abandoned farming to go into entrepreneurship. Rural patterns of work, land leasing, wealth changed markedly after 1978. Uh, millions of political prisoners are freed from prisons and labor camps. Criticizing public policy no longer triggers extreme retaliation. The role of the police force is cut back substantially. Younger, better educated people committed to reform are brought into prominent government positions. In short, things get way fucking better when Mao dies because he was a piece of shit. Uh, not that things were suddenly amazing. Reforms would increase and stall over the decades to come with protesters emerging, then being beaten back by the government. Uh, China's economy booms. Party leaders tenuously balance reform and authoritarianism. Whew. Let's hop out of this timeline now. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So how is Mao regarded today? Outside of China, not well. Generally regarded as one of the worst motherfuckers of all time. The most common number assigned to Mao regarding how many deaths his policies were directly responsible for seems to be 45 million. 45 million of his own people. Hitler is assigned around 11 to 12 million non-combatant deaths. Stalin is assigned as few as 3 million and as high as 60 million non-combatant deaths. The most common number assigned is 9 million. 9 million, 12 million, 45 million. Not even close. When it comes to non-combatant deaths, uh, you know, not even Genghis Khan's armies killed as many people as Mao's stupid policies. Genghis Khan's armies thought to have killed around 40 million people total, including soldiers. This makes Mao Zedong the worst mass murderer of all time. How does China view him? For many, he left a complicated legacy. Right? The Chinese people's will to examine the Cultural Revolution emerged very quickly after Mao died in 1976. Uh, from 1977 through 1980, China allowed writers to explore at least part of the truth about what happened during Mao's reign. But then when they got, uh, you know, a little, little too deep, the government's 
level of comfort in late 1980, China suddenly ruled that exposure of the Cultural Revolution had gone far enough. Further probing might lead to public rejection of not only Mao, but of the Communist Party itself. That says so much. Uh, the government archives were closed. They remain closed to this day. The propaganda in China continues, which makes it obviously hard to see Mao for who he was for many in China. Mao is still celebrated as one of the key figures in Chinese history, at least by the Communist Party. On the 120th anniversary of Mao's birth in 2012, current CCP chairman Xi Jinping called him a great patriot and national hero. Uh, President Biden just said on March 25th that Xi Jinping doesn't have a democratic bone in his body. Uh, while not as ruthless as Mao was, Xi Jinping still punishes dissent in China to an extent we probably won't fully realize for many years. How can the average Chinese citizen really analyze how they feel about Mao if they're still afraid on some level to denounce him, if they're not allowed to learn enough about him? Let's recap all we've gone through today. It's a monster topic today, more ways than one. Today we sucked Mao Zedong, his Chinese Communist Party, some of the moments that shaped Mao's reign of terror uh, in the name of reform and revolution. What a huge topic, one that continues to shape Chinese politics and society today. After coming to power by winning a very long, more than two-decade-long civil war with the opposing Nationalist Party, Mao instigates his great leap forward, a five-year plan of shit, forced agricultural collectivization, rural industrialization. It results in a sharp contraction in the Chinese economy. Between 30 to 55 million die by starvation, execution, torture, and forced labor. It was the longest non-wartime campaign of mass killing in human history. Some people resorted to cannibalism to survive. Mao's official goal was to rapidly evolve China from an agrarian economy into a modern industrial society with greater ability to compete with Western industrialized nations, and it was a failure. You can't turn peasants into steelworkers overnight. Trying to maintain his position as a leader and quell opposition, Mao then started the Cultural Revolution, an army of students known as the Red Guard, mobilized to fight against old traditions and ideas. All through it, Mao's China published propaganda, slogans, images of his face. His little red book is published to maintain his tight grip on China. All of this had devastating effects, both for the economy and for society. The only way out for China was to scale back their central planning, give people more economic and personal liberties, which thankfully they have done. But the one-party system of China still exists, with many worried that Xi is simply following in Mao's footsteps. Let's head now to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Mao was a Marxist communist. He believed in abolishing private property, communal living, central planning, state-run economics, and a single-party system. He wanted to modernize China rapidly through top-down planning, but the Great Leap Forward did way more damage than it did good. Number two, Mao was often constipated, truly. His wife had to pull the shit out of his butt and later learned how to give him enemas. He was literally full of shit. Number three, Mao had almost all of China's sparrows killed in arguably the most misguided attempt to increase agricultural output of all time. With the birds gone, there were more locusts than ever and thus a lot less crops. Environmentalism, not always a hippie talk. If we don't take care to protect nature, we will die. Number four, we meat sacks need to honor debate and the diversity of ideas if we don't want, want to be like Mao. Don't be like Mao. Mao was able to mobilize an army of young people to fucking murder teachers, artists, intellectuals, and other people that didn't like Mao, didn't think like Mao because he demonized other ideas as counter-revolutionary. Number five, new info. Near the end of his life, Mao praised ancient Qing dynasty emperor uh, Shi Huangdi, and this guy was interesting. While Shi Huangdi at age 13, uh, or when he formally ascended to the throne, in 246 BCE, his first act as king was to execute his mother's lover, who had joined the opposition. He executed somebody right away. No wonder Mao liked him. He was deeply interested in magic and alchemy. 
and he traveled frequently to search for masters in these arts who could provide him with the elixir of immortality. In 2010 BCE, he would die on one such trip. Uh, one source indicates that he died by, poison by poisoning after drinking what he thought was this elixir. His son, Huhai, would take the throne for three years uh, and would leave an interesting legacy of his own. He was famous for killing messengers who brought him bad news. He, he is the origin of the saying, don't kill the messenger. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Mao Zedong. Mao, oh my God, Zedong sucked. At least a little. My mouth is dead. So much to pick from. And it came, from came to information this week. Oh my God, my brain is shot. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this one today. I learned so much. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fax, Sorceress Evans, Bid Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com, working on socials along with Liz Hernandez. Next week on Time Suck, El Chapo. We bounce from China to Mexico. Look at one of the most powerful drug traffickers in modern history and a dude who pulled off one of the craziest prison breaks I've ever heard about. In July of 2015, he escaped via a roughly mile-long tunnel that led to an entry under the shower of his cell. And this wasn't the first time this guy escaped. He was taken out of prison in a laundry cart back in 2001. The leader of the, uh, oh my gosh, Sina, <laughs> Sinaloa, there we go. Uh, cartel is in prison today, but for how long? I'll transition to more Spanish uh, words next week. Uh, and what did he do to get sent to prison in the first place? Why did people work so hard to get him out twice? A fun and different kind of true crime suck to dig into, pun not intended, next week. Right now, let's hear some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. I recorded this episode before last week's Pig Farmer Killer Suck, so no updates for that one yet. Uh, gonna start with an Elan School update this week. Sweet Sack Stephanie Kendrick writes, greeting Suckmaster. Stumbled upon the podcast years ago while listening to comedy stations on Pandora. Quickly became hooked. Yes. Uh, writing because the last three episodes hit me more than the others. I figured it was the perfect time to drop a line. Yosemite killer, I live in Santa Rosa. Grew up in Northern California, so it was cool to know all the locations you were mush-mouthing about in or throughout about in the episode. Pop Award. Hit me in the feels. My papa was the best man I've ever known. Ah, caring, hardworking, uh, a vet was never far from <laughs> a keystone or an ice cold keystone light. That's hilarious. He passed uh, about five years ago. I still think about him and miss him every day. Also, how badass is your grandma? I thought I was a rock star for having an unmedicated birth, but she takes it to a new level. Alon School, my younger brother was sent off to one of these schools when he was 16, the Horizon Academy near Vegas. He was kind of a punk, getting into trouble, overwhelmed my parents. They were convinced this place would offer counseling, structure, and help. Until this episode, I never really asked or talked to my brother about his experience, but got the opportunity this weekend. He said it was awful. Insane levels that were impossible to attain. Uh, rules that made no sense. No social interaction. Punishments for even looking at other people. No letters that we sent in or he sent out were ever not altered. Uh, even the letter my mom wrote letting him know about our grandfather passing was whittled down to one sentence. My parents were required to go to seminars. Uh, pay more money for those. My parents had to take out loans, well over $60,000 for him to be there. And he didn't even come out with as much as a GED. These places create false hope in desperate parents and cause students pain and distrust. Thank you for covering the subject because I may never have sat and actually listened to my brother's experience. I always thought he was being defiant, just trying not to communicate with us while there. I feel like us talking about it helped our relationship. Uh, I hope you made it this far down. Not sorry for the length. Love all the three podcasts. Three out of five stars for show. Thank you, Stephanie. Ah, that was all awesome information. I appreciate that. I'm so glad you and your bro are closer now. That's awesome. 
Uh, now for an interesting Yosemite killer suck update coming in from knowledgeable sack Jordan Ferguson, who writes, hello, everyone at the Suck Dungeon. I really enjoyed the most recent episode of Time Suck. I had to chime in about the whole Bigfoot fetish that Carrie Stainer had. At one point, you mentioned that Carrie's mother, in a bid to find solace, joined the LDS church. There is some little-known Mormon folklore to the outside world that some Latter-day Saints believe that Bigfoot is not only real, but that he is Cain, the famed brother killer of Genesis from the Bible. Thankfully, very few believe this claim, but it comes from a letter sent by one of the first apostles of the church, later quoted in a book that was required reading for a time by missionaries of the church, The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer Kimball. I won't quote it here, but I will provide you with a link that talks about the quote from the letter. I wonder if Kerry had accompanied his mom to a meeting and someone had mentioned it to him, and that's part of why he believed in Sasquatch with such vigor. Though there are many non-LDS people who believe him to be real, so most likely this is conjecture on my part. When I was young, like 10, I kind of believed the story, but as I got older, it made zero sense for me for a number of reasons, but more than any because we have no scientific proof of Sasquatch, like you talked about way back in the Sasquatch versus Nessie episode. Anyway, here's your link, which has some more links. Anyway, if this gets read on the air, give a huge shout out to my buddy, if you could, who infected me with space lizarditis, Spencer, and three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Thanks, Lizard Jordan. I looked at your link, Jordan. That is that is very interesting. That, that was part of uh, old LDS lore. Yeah, who knows if you got it from there or not, but it's just interesting to know that it's in there. And uh, yeah, and I believe the Sasquatch is a kid too. I, I still would love to know that he's real. I mean, it's hard to believe it, but be awesome. And yes, yeah, Spencer, thanks for turning Jordan on to the suck. All right, now for another grandparent tribute inspired by the Pop Award suck, sent in by Top Shelf Sack Robert Phillips, who writes, Dear Suckmaster, damn you for making me cut onions on my drive to work this morning. I'm a longtime fan of your stand-up. I've been hooked on the suck since 2018. I was listening to this episode in your grandpa ward about how your grandparents had such a huge impact on you. Made me reflect on the influence my own grandparents had, specifically my maternal grandfather, Grandpa Jack. Like your grandpa, mine was a hardworking man. A man of few words, choosing them carefully. He loved my grandma, traveling in his motorhome, woodworking in his family. He was a perfectionist in all that he did, probably because he was an aerospace engineer, so not a lot of room for error. My older sister and I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm. It was three acres and one horse growing up. And I spent almost all of my time following grandpa around. He taught me how to fix everything from cars to furniture to fences. He also taught me respect, kindness, the value of work while also nurturing my mechanical aptitude. I first got interested in cars because of him and now I am the lead technician at a dealership. His example truly influenced the man I am today. I spent a lot of time in the barn just watching, holding things, grabbing tools as he would build whatever shelf or frame or a new saddle rack grandma wanted. She'd always tell him, it doesn't have to fly, Jack. Just make the damn thing. That's a great quote. He helped design and build some benches for my Eagle Scout project. It was during that build back in 2003 that Graham and I noticed this one sharp man had lost a step. Wasn't long after, he got lost one day out on a drive and couldn't tell us where he was, nor could he get home. For the next seven years, we watched a once strong, sharp, hardworking man become a shell of his former self due to Alzheimer's. Let me just say, fuck that disease and the horse it rode in on. Watching someone you love change, forget, slowly die before your eyes is the most painful thing in the world. My grandpa died in March of 2010 when you started choking up about your grandpa. That's right. I remember my allergies got uh, weird for a second. I couldn't help tearing up myself a bit. Hell, I'm tearing up uh, writing this to you now. I regret not telling him how much he meant to me, how much of an impact he made on me, even how much I loved him before he slipped away. You're right about grabbing onto those grandparents, telling them how much they mean. My grandma died in 2018, and you better believe she knew how much I loved her. Sorry, not sorry for this medium-length email, but I just wanted to add another voice to the tell people you love them because life is short group. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for reminding me of one of the many great meat sacks who made me the man I am today. P.S. I laughed so hard at your burly, one-armed Swedish great-uncle who took up woodworking and lost fingers. Why would you go near a saw after that, you idiot? 
Sorry, I'm done. Yeah, Robert. Uh, no, yeah, you're right. What, no one will ever understand why he fucking went near a saw after that. And I loved hearing about your grandpa, man. Grandpa Jack, that's awesome. So thank you for sharing his life. And one more now. This is a long ass episode. <laughs> uh, so much, but I love it. Now at the Nexium Cult Suck update from Cult Close Encountering Sack Frank Conklin, who writes, Hello, Master the Suck, Bojangles Chew Toy. Sorry, not sorry about the length of this email, but I figured you'd want to hear this craziness. I'm originally from upstate New York, around Albany. My mom still lives there. I offhandedly mentioned to her that I recently listened to a podcast about a cult that started in Clifton Park and how I was surprised that I had never heard about it while living in New York. She asked me, do you mean the Nexium cult? I said, yes. Then she drops a bombshell on me. We were heavily involved with Keith Ranieri's Ponzi MLM scheme. My mom was hired by Ranieri to be his personal secretary. Holy shit. And then after working for him a bit, and a few others, uh, he tried recruiting her into the inner circle, but uh, she was apparently not, or he was apparently not satisfied with her answers to their questions about joining the inner circle or something along those lines, because they quickly backed off that attempt, and Keith made her the head of shipping in the Cl in Clifton Park instead. Later, after Ranieri is arrested and everything, this evil scum fuck uh, did. My mom figured out he was trying to get her to join the sex cult. Holy shit! My mother told uh, me that both my sister and I met Ranieri several times. I do not remember this and that he was always cordial and professional with her. When the federal government brought charges against Ranieri, several others, my mom had to give a de deposition on what happened at the Clifton Park office. She feels bad for Ranieri's victims because if she would have known the evil shit he was doing, she would have definitely notified the authorities. Well, thank you for everything you and the Time Suck crew do to keep this truck driver entertained while traveling long distances between deliveries and keep on sucking, Frank Conklin. Holy shit, Frank. My God, man. Uh, <laughs> fucking drive safe, first of all. All those drives. And that's crazy that your mom almost got recruited into the sex cult uh, for Nexium. My God, I love these connections. Eee, and I lied. We have one more now. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll feel terrible if I don't do this because then I'll, I'll, I'll lose it. It won't ever get on a suck. Ending now on a solid dad warning from concerned sucker, Dr. Melissa Tolios. Hello, suck master and the whole sucking crew. She writes, I heard your ad for dad watch and I'd really like to join and assist. You see my own father passed away in January, 2020 while I was two states away fulfilling my PhD residency requirement for cultural studies and anthropology. My father was a real mother sucker, and his passing made me realize I don't know much about his sucking whereabouts for the past few decades. Maybe he helped Albert Fish find the right sucking contacts, or he might have tried to help cull birds in the Great War of the uh, Emu Suckitude, or maybe he helped cover up the Armenian genocide, and that's why no one has ever heard of it. My point is you're absolutely right. We don't know where our sucking fathers might have been or in what ways they may have been sucking at the time. I can't ask my father now, but my PhD program has taught me to be magnificent at research. So I now fully intend to explore each day of my dad's sucky life and see what kind of suckage he was getting into. Thanks for opening my eyes to the importance of this research and showing me that just because we don't have any proof, that doesn't mean we can't suspect or theorize the roles our fathers might have played in, his, in history. Praise good boy for Jangles. Be not gone, Luc Lucifina. Hail Lord Nimrod. And for suck's sake, keep on sucking, you beautiful mother suckers. Dr. Melissa Tolios. You're right, Dr. Tolios. We don't know. Uh, sorry about your, your loss and best of luck with your research. When you're done researching your dad, please look into mine. So many fucking questions. And that's all for today, you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sex. Please don't take over any nations this week and kill millions of important birds and cause millions to starve. Just instead... Why don't you just keep on sucking?
shit. I don't know how to turn the cameras off. God dang it. I killed all the employees here to save money. I wasn't thinking about uh, that they do a lot of stuff. Like produce all the podcasts. I'm happy that I saved the money, but now I can't get a fucking show out. I can't even turn these cameras off. God dang it. Oh, man. I wish I could. I wish I could. It's so hard to unkill somebody. I wonder if I, if I threw Joe's corpse against the cameras. Maybe. Oh, fuck. I know how Mal felt about those birds. So, hey, haha. Got a lot of the, I think I got a lot of the words okay today. That was good. What do you guys think about food? I like food. I'm hungry. I just, I don't know. I'm just gonna slowly get out of here. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 